This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 52. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of change. Uh, my name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So uh, exciting episode today. Uh, before we jump into the agenda for today, uh, just a reminder that new episodes come out every Wednesday. You can find new episodes of this podcast on YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, etc. But you can also find us every Wednesday on all the audio podcast platforms as well, whether it be Spotify, Google, Amazon, or Chrome or uh, whatever the podcast platforms are. I can't even remember what they all are at this point. Uh, but wherever you listen to podcasts, be sure to check us out every Wednesday. So today is uh, going to be very heavy on the organizational change and the people side of transformation. So we've got an episode planned out for you today where we're going to dive pretty deep into this whole concept of change management concept we touch on i think every episode we've done so far of the 51 episodes so far i think we've talked about change management in every single one of those to some degree it's hard to hard to have a conversation without getting into the change management piece um but today uh we'll be even more so focused on change management we're going to start off talking about uh some of the hot topics related to culture and organizational change management uh we'll we'll kind of run through some of the trends in the market and hot topics uh relevant to today's day and age in digital transformation. And then later on the show, we're going to have a repeat guest, someone who we had, uh, I think over the summer, we had uh, Jed Hafer from a company called Mission Peace. And Jed is a specialist in emotional intelligence. And uh, he's also within emotional intelligence and within organizational psychology and organizational change. Uh, he, he also focuses quite a bit on culture. So I, wanna, I wanted to have him back on the show to really unpack this whole concept of, of organizational culture, what it is, how it affects the transformation, how it affects performance of an organization, how it can hold you back if you don't address it, what some of the nuances, nuances are to think about. All that stuff we're going to dive into, uh, focusing really on culture and trying to add some meat or some tangible understanding of what something that's very vague and nebulous uh, might mean. And then finally, after we have Jed on the show, we are going to... Uh, play you a clip from uh, several months ago. Uh, it was actually actually an interview I did for our sister podcast called Digital Stratosphere, where we sort of provided an overview of change management, just things to think about what some of the nuances of change management are. So we thought that'd be a good sort of baseline clip to talk more fundamentally about in general, what is change management? What are some of the basic things you need to know and understand as part of your change initiative? So uh, those are the three main segments we'll have for you today. But before we jump in and, and have our guest, our first guest on the show here today, Kyler, what are some of the hot topics you've got for us as it relates to change management and culture? Absolutely. So speaking of tangible, I wanted to start today by just sharing some numbers. You know, why are we going to spend 
this hour plus talking about change management, emotional intelligence, and why is that important, specifically right now. So during November of 2021, just that month alone, we had 4.5 million people quit their jobs, which is the highest on record. So as we're going through kind of this great reshuffle of what that looks like, we've also seen LinkedIn's global global talent trends. Um, it shows that posts or job postings that mention culture get 67% more likes, shares, and comments. So engagement on those types of posts. And then we also saw from their metrics on LinkedIn, which obviously is the top global talent acquisition platform and social professional platform, they saw 362% growth in the number of their members posts that mentioned flexibility over the last two years. So culture has been something that has obviously been top of mind. So when we talk about the great resignation, um, I wanted to kind of talk about third stage here, Eric, because we've always kind of had that culture of flexibility. And I wondered if you might share some insight as to even pre-pandemic, the before time, if you'll call it, and how did you know that that was something that you needed to create within the third stage community? The the culture of flexibility in particular? Yes. Or focus on culture. With flexibility, I think it honestly, it's just my personal preference. I always valued flexibility when I wasn't a business owner or the CEO. Um, so I always thought, you know, as consultants, you work hard, you travel a lot, you're, you're sort of, uh, you're having to address and accommodate client demands, um, which oftentimes are very high. And I just thought, you know, a good anecdote to that or a way or antidote to that, to that stress and pressure and heavy workload is to have flexibility. So I always thought, I always just thought it was something that was very important for me personally. And so I, you know, in starting a company, I'm obviously going to be true to myself and, um, value that. So we, you know, we, we don't micromanage in, in, uh, as, a, as a company, and we certainly don't micromanage where, when, or how people do their work as long as, you know, we're meeting client expectations and other metrics that we set for ourselves. Uh, but as it relates to culture and why that was so important and why in, in starting third stage, why I thought that was so important, quite frankly, is because I messed up in my previous company and I didn't focus on culture. And one thing I want to talk to you about, Jed, when he's on, is I want to talk about this whole concept of, you know, what happens if you don't think about culture? You know, what does that look like? Is it possible that you could just get lucky and create a great culture without deliberately doing it? And my hypothesis is that it's impossible, but I want to kind of hear his thoughts on on that because having done it myself, I thought if I just, you know, I have my own personality and I figure if I hire, you know, hire the right people or hire some smart people and uh, my personality is just going to sort of magically spread to others and it's just going to, we're all going to come together and be seeing in Kumbaya and have a very healthy culture. But what I learned in my previous company is that is not the case at all. Uh, if you don't deliberately set out to define what you want that culture to be and you don't consistently reinforce that culture and pivot and adjust wherever you need to, then it's it's going to it's gonna slide downward. Um, and unfortunately, gravity is going to pull you down uh, over time. So uh, anyway, that's that's been my finding is is that uh, by messing it up and seeing the negative consequences and what a toxic environment that creates by not focusing on culture and then having the culture just sort of happen to you, um, that's a very negative thing. That's it's uh, in my opinion nearly impossible to to change once you've gotten a toxic culture. Absolutely, and I think you know that just showcases that failure a lot of times has such a negative connotation. 
but we can learn really positive and actionable lessons from you know previous mistakes we had. And that is part of the human experience that you know you and 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 Jed talk about a little bit. Um, I also wanted to reference just a few huge industry titans, specifically in the tech world, that really have embraced this because they've seen how it affects their overall, not only talent acquisition and their their retention, but also their ROI. So IBM is a great example of this. They started a work from home pledge um, and it encourages things like family sensitivity, um, not camera ready times. And they really created this culture of accountability, but also compassion through coaching, which you really don't expect from a tech company like IBM to be kind of more in touch with those kind of touchy feely sides of company culture. And it's also Target has done it, Instacart, which is a, you know, a huge platform that's seen a ton of growth with the pandemic. Um, it has done it um, and just putting together kind of a cultural manifesto and almost a promise to mm -hmm. their employees of, of what they will support with a, either a flexible workspace or just creating this this positive cultural dynamic. So we do, we see the big companies really moving towards that. Which brings yeah. me to kind of my next trend here. Um, and it's kind of talking about the, the importance of cult, a culture of coaching um, and utilizing that within your organization. And the interesting part about this article specifically is it talks about really the overall research on how that affects your actual revenue. Because obviously we can all say, of course you need a culture of coaching, but we don't, I think, really understand how that will really affect the bottom line. And so this made me think about how a lot of times you have to set metrics, both tangible and intangible for clients when you're measuring things like change management. So it, I wondered if you could kind of give us some insight on that experience, how you show, hey, this actually will affect your overall revenue um, and the, the growth of whatever technology or transformation you're going through. How do you kind of sell that to clients when a lot of our perceptions are it's not a necessity? Yeah, it, that's, that's a hard question and that's a hard topic to address because that is such a common perception and you know myself included like I just shared with my previous experience it, it's if unless you have uh, burned your hand on the stove so to speak just to use a kid analogy it, it, it's hard to know for sure that you're going to get burned so it's 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 like it's, so it's sometimes it's hard to educate people that haven't already messed it up in their past careers but what I will say is that um, you know one way to, to look at it is um, you know culture provides sort of like a a tailwind that, that keeps you operating like a well-oiled machine, not a perfectly well-oiled machine, but a, but a well-oiled one. And uh, if you don't address culture and people are left to their own devices, they're going to go in different directions. Whether it's right or wrong doesn't really matter. The fact is people are rowing in different directions, and that just creates a lot of turbulence, a lot of headwinds, and a lot of uh, lost momentum. So it's hard to quantify that, but it 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 is a, maybe a more practical or tangible way to think about culture is it's a way to make sure that you're you're staying aligned and that you're all rowing in the same direction and not heading off in a bunch of different directions, which ultimately going in the same direction, even if it's not the perfect direction, if you're all going in the same direction, you're going to be more profitable. You're going to be more successful than the company that maybe they have a brilliant strategy, but they can't execute because they, they aren't, they don't have the right culture and they're all going in different directions or they have some, some sort of negative toxicity to their culture that is undermining their ability to execute. So 
that'd be my reaction to that. It doesn't give you a perfect uh, quantitative answer, but it, it does, I think, make it a little bit more tangible than just talking about culture or change management in general. Yeah, absolutely. I actually saw a case study um, of Helen of Troy's culture. So a, a business, they actually uh, took this approach of addressing culture as a part of their overall revenue strategy. So instead of saying, hey, this is an, an HR strategy, they, they actually built it into their overall kind of growth and revenue strategy. And from 2018 to 2021, with that sort of power of one spirit that they call it, um, they actually grew during the pandemic, mind you, uh, their revenue by 40%. Uh, so it kind of just showcased that placing culture, values, purpose in the center of these decision strategies and policies really does have an impact on the overall business underlying. So it should be something that is considered absolutely pivotal as a part of success. I think in 2022, I really think is going to be the year of culture, the year of HR strategies, the year of the employee, if you will, um, and focusing on how do you create a healthy, happy work environment on a hybrid basis, a work from home basis, and those types of things. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of the trends of culture in 2022 for businesses? Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of culture as as a trend for 2022. I, I think it's a general trend, longer term, short term as well. Um, but where, where I, the reason I was differentiating or, or clarifying that I, I hadn't thought of culture as a specific trend for this year is because the the one area that I did and I do expect to be more, maybe more specific to this year is the HR, human capital management side of things, which obviously there's a lot of overlap between HR, human capital management strategy and the culture you create as an organization. Um, so I think we're probably saying the same thing when I say, you know, one of my predictions for this year is that HCM will become uh, increasingly important, uh, especially in light of the fact that you're having these uh, great resignations, a lot of turnover, a lot of people leaving the workforce, a lot of people looking for something a lot more meaningful than they have in the past, uh, something well beyond a paycheck. Um, and I think just the turbulence in the marketplace, uh, along with changing expectations, is you're going to have to figure out this whole human capital management thing, which includes culture. So I, I, yes, I agree. I agree with you, even though I didn't explicitly call out culture as a, as a prediction or trend for 2022. I think it's actually just an underlying thing that's here to stay permanently or should be here to stay permanently. Yeah, that's interesting. It makes me think of something else I found in my research is there's kind of this niche marketplace for LMS LMSs, I guess, right now, right? Learning management systems, because again, it, it gives data behind a very soft science. So it puts hard data behind this is the training modules we went through, and then this is the employee that did it, and that salesperson sold 30% more this quarter, those types of things. So it seems to be that's kind of a, an emerging area within kind of the HR technologies. Is that something you've seen as well? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, any of these uh, learning management systems or uh, user adoption, employee adoption type technologies, uh, those seem to be pretty hot right now. Uh, largely because it hasn't been done well in the past or there hasn't been a lot there hasn't been a lot of really good technology options available to the mainstream organizations out there um, but also it's also become even more important because of all the stuff you just talked about which is the you know the great resignation and changing expectations in the marketplace uh, in the employee marketplace and all that good stuff um, so yeah I think LMS uh, any sort of uh, 
learning and development types of uh, technologies are, are going to be critical and increasingly important over time. Absolutely. And that, that brings me to kind of my um, last bucket of themes that I've been seeing that I wanted to talk to you about today within our culture conversation, and that's leadership. Because we all know, you know, it starts at the top. It's the executive's job to set a culture. And ironically, they often are the biggest barriers to those sort of cultural or organization change initiatives because they want to know, like, what is this really going to influence? Why would I invest in this? Um, so a lot of what I've been seeing as a trend is just a shifting of that leadership mindset to really focus on how do you, you yourself create a flexible culture or a culture in which employees want to work for. So there's three stages in this study I was looking at, and I, I wonder if I could just read them to you and then you can kind of let me know your feedback. Um, so stage one is understanding yourself through cognitive self-awareness. So they, they really say that unless you know, you know, your leadership style, what triggers you, what, you know, what you're going to showcase by kind of leading with example, there's no way you can pass that down to the team. And then the second one is understanding your environment through situational awareness. So making sure that you are able to interpret your environment, understand what features are present, what implications are going on within your overall business ecosystem. Um, they gave an example for this one, which I kind of want to share because it's kind of gray area to me. Um, a leader of a multinational fast-moving consumer goods company found that she was struggling with several complex problems that would benefit from a wider viewpoint. After getting kind of a, a 360 feedback, she learned that she needed to listen more and all she was doing was speaking in meetings through that kind of two-way situational awareness and that feedback loop. So that's kind of what they mean there. Um, and then stage three would be broaden your range. So basically practicing micro behaviors that will help you kind of increase your range of leadership. So maybe you are someone that speaks a lot in meetings just because that's your communication style, is creating a micro behavior that when you go into a meeting, you're intentional about your listening style, that you make a note that you're not going to say anything unless you have a question or something like that. Um, so they talk about that to grow your emotional intelligence and overall your ability to be a whole healthy leader. Um, what are some of your reactions? Would you add some? Would you take some away? Or what does that look like from your point of view? Yeah, I I, um, I like those that you just mentioned. I hadn't heard those specific four, uh, three to four stages of, of, of that in the past, but, but it makes sense now that you're hearing you say that. Um, I think the one thing I'd add, or maybe just a, a nuance to add in there, is that, you know, if you if you look at your culture you know, you have to look at the potential downside of the culture you're, you're aspiring to, you know, for example, if, uh, if, if I'm trying to create a culture of flexibility, be, to use your example from a minute ago, it's not enough for me to set that as sort of the tone and to say, I'm, I'm going to create a culture of flexibility. Um, that's, it's not easy to do, but let's just say I can do it fairly easily and fairly straightforward. I can, I can, uh, walk the talk. I can reinforce through my own behaviors and you know, the way people are managed, ensure that we have flexibility. If we leave just flexibility alone and unchecked, it's not going to be sustainable because what will happen is if we don't add something to sort of uh, counterbalance the potential dark side of flexibility, then 
the flexibility cultural mindset's going to eventually disappear. And the reason for that is because there's no way that just with flexibility, and, I, and I'm totally oversimplifying this example, I'll fully admit it. But if all I do is say I'm going to focus on a culture of flexibility, but I don't add a, a element of uh, accountability to what is expected, you know, yes, you can work when and where and how you want, but here's what we expect you to do, or here, here are the outputs or the outcomes we expect. Without that second part, the flexibility culture isn't going to stick because what will end up happening is because we haven't set clear expectations, yes, we have flexibility, but we also have poor accountability. And someone at some point in the in our journey of cultural evolution is going to have to counterbalance that by coming in over the top and saying, okay, well, we're going to have to come, we're going to have to get rid of the flexibility then because we can't get the accountability we want. So we're going to make everyone come in the office eight to five and we're going to micromanage them and blah, blah, blah. It's not the right answer, but I'm just giving an example of what happens when you don't think about what is the counter, how do we have to counteract or, or counterbalance the potential dark side of that cultural nuance we're trying to create. So that's that's the one thing I'd add is just the, in addition to everything else you said, which I think it supports everything you said, which is you have to be aware, first of all, to back to one of your points about awareness and situational awareness, you have to sort of anticipate that, you know, if I do this, there's a potential dark side over here that I would need to balance to make sure that I get get it right, you know, where the overall culture I'm trying to create. Absolutely. I think that's a, a great point and an important balance to establish, especially for leadership and, and really understanding and being intentional about how you're going to do that as a team, I think is really important. Um, so one uh, burning question I had for you during this um, kind of overall top line research of culture in our trends for 2022. Sure. I wondered if there's this obviously call for flexibility within the workplace um, and kind of an employee-focused strategy or overall movement, I guess is a better word. And there's also seems to be this shift within the digital transformation industry into systems that are best of breed or more flexible options. And there seems to be a call from customers to say, hey, no, actually, we want to be the focus of this, not so much the software vendor. And I know you've preached that for years, but it seems like it really is taking a shift um, within 2022. And I, I wondered if you thought those things were related from a timing perspective. Is in, in terms of the cultural shift and the, the flexibility expectation that's come? Yeah, so... It seems like employees now are calling on their their companies like, hey, you need to treat me right, you need to be flexible. And then we also have clients calling on software vendors being like, no, I'm not going to fit in your ERP box. I right. want this best of breed system, and I'm going to tell you what I want my business processes to be, not you're going to tell me. And I wondered if those two things were related, or I was just thinking way too much into it. <laughs> Well, I think it's a, it's an interesting question because I think in general, uh, maybe for too long, we've been trying to fit things into boxes that shouldn't be fit into boxes. Or, or when I say boxes, I guess I, what I really mean is uh, trying to fit things into one size fits all answers. So so I guess I don't necessarily prescribe to the idea that um, you know people need to be in the office eight to five Monday through Friday. But I also don't prescribe to the idea that there are some schools of thought post-pandemic here that, see, we can all work remotely. You know, for office workers, we should be able to work remotely and everything's fine. Because I think you do, there are certain things you just, you miss um, by not having the in-person in interaction. So it doesn't need to be all, or, does it need to be all or nothing? I guess that's more of the more of a question that I would challenge people to ask is, you know, 
do I am am I searching for a one size fits all answer that is unreasonable and or doesn't exist? And secondly, you know, if I'm going to be have a more flexible model, what's the right answer for different situations? And um, there's probably not a silver bullet that's going to solve all the problems for everyone, but it's it's more of that to use your term the situa- situational awareness, understanding the situation that you're in right now, and what's the appropriate tool to pull out of your toolbox to to address whatever whatever that need is. But I do think in general, flexibility is, is key. I think that's definitely where the digital transformation space had already been moving. And it's it's just accelerated that now with the, the pandemic. You, you see it in the workforce. The workforce is demanding more flexibility. Clients are demanding more flexibility. Um, so I think it's probably an indicator that for too long, we've been trying to force fit a one-size-fits-all answer in cases where we shouldn't have been. That'd be my knee-jerk yeah. reaction to that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, interesting stuff. And I'm definitely excited to hear from Jed again. Um, He's got so many great insights and a great way of explaining things and awesome metaphors. I always take at least three pages of notes and I'm like, how am I going to condense these into a couple questions after we unpack it? So lots to learn from this session. Yeah. Yeah. So Jed Hafer, uh, if you have been watching this episode or this uh, podcast for a while, you may remember him from, I think it was in maybe September. It was either late summer, early fall of 2021. He was on the show talking about emotional intelligence. We did touch on organizational culture, but we didn't dive into it in a, in a huge amount of detail. Uh, but today I, I wanted to kind of hone in on that that one lens with him. Uh, but Jed's an interesting guy. He's actually someone that um, I went to high school with. So I, I've known him since I was a, a kid. Um, and it just so happens that we're in this sort of semi-related space. But the real reason I wanted him on the show, not just because we go back decades, but is is because he's got not just an understanding of organizational culture, but he comes at it from a really unique perspective of um, he, he works largely with educational, uh, like uh, uh, elementary school, elementary and high schools. And he focuses on troubled situations like low performing schools and what do they need to do to change their cultures and, and change their um, organizational performance. So he has some pretty well battle tested high stakes situations where he's seen culture backfire and he's seen what can happen when you when you successfully transform culture. So I thought it'd be an interesting uh, sort of connecting the dots of what he sees in the education space and how it relates to organizational performance, even outside of education, whether it's for profit or government, nonprofit, whatever. Um, I think there's a lot of I want to take some takeaways from him that we can apply to any sort of digital transformation in any industry. Um, So we're going to have Jed on the show. He's from an organization called Mission Peace. We're going to talk about organizational culture. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control, and we'll have Jed on as soon as we come back. We'll be right back. So for all you listeners of Transformation Ground Control, I wanted to remind you of a premier annual event that we host every year. It's called Digital Stratosphere. It's a virtual conference that we've actually shifted to virtual since the pandemic. And we're having our next Digital Stratosphere conference online virtually uh, February 8th through the 10th. So I encourage you to register for that. We're going to, myself and others from the third stage team, will be hosting sessions, facilitating sessions about software selection, how to implement software, what some of the best practices are, change management, digital strategy, program management, all the stuff you need to know to make your digital transformation successful in 2022 and beyond. This event's for you. Registration's free. We encourage you and your teams to join. Um, If you're not able to join us live, which we hope you will, 
But if you can't join us live, we'll also have, uh, we'll make the recordings available to you. So be sure to register either way. Even if you can't join all the sessions live, you'll at least get access to the library of recordings. So I encourage you to check that out. There's a link below in this podcast, wherever you're listening or watching. Uh, there's a link below to register. And you can also just go to our website at Third Stage, and it's spelled T-H-I-R-D stage dash consulting.com at the top of the page you'll see an icon for registering for digital stratosphere so be sure to check it out digital stratosphere february 8th through 10th hope to see you there hello welcome back to transformation ground control episode number 52 my name is eric kimberling i'm here with kyler cheatham you can find new episodes every wednesday on youtube linkedin twitter Facebook, etc. You can also find us on the audio podcast platforms like Google, Amazon, Spotify, etc. Pandora, iHeartRadio, all those, all those podcast platforms, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, and I'm excited for our next guest, Jed Hafer, who is from an organization called Mission Peace, who does, uh, he, he does a lot of different types of consulting. A lot of his background has been focused on the uh, education space, but his general background is focused on culture, emotional intelligence, um, organizational change in general. So we thought it'd be good to have him on the show today to really hone in and dive into this whole concept of organizational culture. What is it? How does it apply to your organization? How does it hinder or enable the performance you're looking for? And how can you use culture as a way to transform your business and improve your business over time? So those are some of the real high-level threads I wanted to get into with him. Um, So with all that being said, Jed, welcome to the show. Oh, Eric, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. So I guess before we jump into this whole concept of organizational culture and how it affects change and transformation, how it affects organizations in general, maybe tell us a little bit about your background. What what do you do and how did you get to this point in your career? Sure. I'm always doing a few different things, uh, which is it's cheaper than than ADHD medications to just have <laughs> a few different uh, focuses. It's a good way to look and at it. And so I have... Uh, I have a company called Mission Peace, and uh, we're largely a training company uh, focused on law enforcement and really authority figures who have to deal with difficult situations. Um, so we've done uh, security teams and, and just about just about any group of people who might have to deal with angry and possibly aggressive people. Um, so there's a high premium on emotional intelligence and de-escalation in our trainings and a lot of, a lot of proactive things uh, so that we can resolve some of those conflicts before they even start. And then I also work with a company called Urban Education Consultants uh, on social media. Uh, Scott Irvin, the the, the man behind it, is known as the Kid Whisperer. Um, He did not pick that name, but he's just really, really good with kids. And so people kind of gave him that name. And then, of course, it sticks on social media. But he's just masterful at helping organizations, in this case, mostly schools, uh, change. And I've gotten to uh, learn his process and watch what he does. And there's, there's a lot of uh, similarities between Love and Logic, uh, my, my former job, uh, where we would go in and, and do a lot of training and consulting for schools just to make them really more peaceful and calm places, uh, better places for teachers to, to work and, and kids to learn. So hopefully, yeah, some of those lessons that, that I've uh, brought from kind of the people side uh, are, are relevant and interesting to, to your listeners. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited to sort of connect the dots here between some of these, um, 
you know, like keep calling it higher stake situations where in some cases it could be life or death is in the case of a, an authority, a police or authoritative uh, figure. Um, or, or in the, the school, it could be, do we get snacks or not? Which is pretty high stakes. <laughs> right. Well, in all seriousness, though, development, education of a, of a child, you know, that's that many would view that as a higher stake uh, situation than a corporate environment. So I, that's why I'm really fascinated or want to learn a little bit more about this to see you know, what the parallels are, maybe what some of the lessons are we could take away into the corporate world. Um, yeah, just at the deepest level, it's, it's helping human beings get along better. And that seems to just be the one thing that I'm that I'm really good at. And I really love doing it. It sounds so simple, yet yet not many people can do it well. <laughs> not many organizations. It's not easy. Right. So so I guess to start then, what you know, you think about organizational culture, whether you're whether you're talking about a police department, a school, or a corporation, um, there's this whole nebulous term that a lot of us don't fully understand, which is just culture. Um, it's hard to hard to touch and feel. You you can't sometimes you just feel it, sometimes you can't see it or touch it. Um, but what, how would you describe organizational culture just sort of in its simplest terms? I like to think of it as the weather that we can make. Um, you know, you can never you probably wish you could control the weather. You can never really control it in our organizations. I think I get to make to a degree, I get to make the weather in my office, in our meetings, in our buildings, however it's going, uh, because we can be intentional, we can set some tones that, that just sort of hang in the air, set a tone of expectation that will hopefully just kind of hang in the air that that says, this is how we do it. This is who we are. And this is how we do things and can create in, in, in positive terms, a wonderful sense of belonging, a wonderful sense of, of meaning in our work beyond just we're, we're doing things. And uh, when it's when it's bad, as, as many of us have experienced, when the culture of an organization is bad, it can get really toxic and it can drag everybody down. And obviously, as human beings, human nature can kick in and we can become uh, pretty negative and, and, and pretty full of, of complainers. Even generally positive and productive people can get in that culture of complaining and it, it seems to, uh, to cycle and, and, and get worse. So I really like to think of it as, and we talked to, to teachers about this, in my classroom, I can make the weather. I can set the tone, I can set the expectations, and the more intentional I am and, and thoughtful about that, uh, it's amazing. We can really have an impact. We never seem to be able to get the culture perfect. It'll always ebb and flow because it, it is somewhat like the weather. There's some uh, elements that we can't control or predict, mm. but it's wonderful if we can be more intentional. And that's what I really try to help people do is be more intentional about setting the tone and, and being proactive about how do I really want it to feel here? How do I want, if a new person came in, how would they view this organization? Pretty quickly, we make those judgments. We look around and say, oh, I can, I can tell what kind of an organization this is. Uh, based on the posters that this teacher hung up in her classroom, I can tell some things about how it's going to be here. Right. Yeah, that's super interesting. I never thought of culture in that, in that exact way of, of just the weather that you create. So it's, it sort of is something you can feel and, and in some cases touch depending on the weather, but it, it's just, it sort of sets the context and the tone. It doesn't necessarily dictate or determine day-to-day -day outcomes, maybe not at that granular level, but the overall mood and feel and environment, whether you're going to have a good day or a bad day, um, that sort of thing, it, that's a good way to, to frame it. Yes. And as leaders, we have a little more control over those things than it will sometimes seem. Again, because of intentionality, people will get sick of hearing me say that word today, but it pulls us to greatness. 
right. intentionality, even in a de-escalation situation, if we're talking about a really angry person, a person who's trying to calm that person down, intentionality can win the day. Uh, there's even some science behind it. Our, our brains have these wonderful neurons called mirror neurons. And what they basically do is say, what's everybody else doing? And we make sure that we relatively match up. If you've ever had this in a meeting where somebody yawns and mm-hmm. then other people start yawning, yeah. that's mirror neurons. Or it could be that I was talking is the other possibility. <laughs> All right. But mirror neurons cause our brains to say, okay, I need to kind of match what everyone else is doing. It's the same reason if you're talking really loud at a party and all of a sudden it gets quiet and you're the only one and that feeling of embarrassment, mirror neurons. So we use those in this case to our advantage. The intentional person can cause the person to pace uh, where, where they're at. Uh, unlike I think last time I was on, we talked about the Jerry Springer effect where people get louder and louder and, and less right. and less in control. Uh, this this goes the other way. The intentional person can bring that other person down. And it's not just about anger or escalation. Mirror neurons work in any any group environment. Uh, so the person who's being intentional and it might be about smiling or being more friendly or showing more interest in my coworkers, that intentional person can have an effect on everybody else, which is wonderful. Right. Right. So it, it it's um, so when you think about um, the, the culture. So we, we talked about the mirror neurons and, and sort of the, the weather that we can create. What, what are some of the specific dimensions of culture? Like if we were to unpack it a little bit more and describe it, what, what are some of those major components of culture? I was thinking about this before talking to you because I was thinking what, you know, what would be valuable, you know, elements of an organizational culture with some of the organizations that you all work with. And I know you work with a wide variety. So I was trying to think of just valuable traits and I think the healthiest organizations, a big one we don't always think about is curiosity. Hmm. Uh, I, want, I want a culture of learning and growth and curiosity that we all look around and we love learning. and We love, we love learning new things. Um, I think organizations can definitely get, we sometimes seek comfort as human beings. So we can get in that fixed mindset versus the growth mindset where I want things to stay the same. I want them to stay comfortable and familiar so that no new stuff comes into my little world and disrupts my, my comfort and my stability. Uh, so I think a healthy organization is kind of the opposite where we're always looking around, not, not distracted from the important things, but just curious to always find out what's new. Is there a better way? Again, thinking in terms of growth and improvement to me, regardless of the field, um, whether it be a, a you know school or a software company, that culture of of curiosity and learning super mm. valuable because we're always just by definition we're going to be getting better, and we're not going to get stuck in some of the old ways, especially the ones that are that are maybe less productive or less healthy. Right. Yeah. I got a couple more. Uh, a culture of high expectations. And this is another thing that uh, working with a lot of schools, I've been in schools now in all but five states, either four or five states. I haven't been to uh, working, training and consulting with teachers and educators. A culture of high expectations is amazing in terms of, of what it can do. Uh, people tend to, and I see this especially with kids, they tend to rise or fall to the level of expectations. And they never rise to low expectations. It's weird how that works out. Yeah, right. 
but I've seen so many wonderful educators who have kids performing at this level and achieving at this level that other people would say that's not even possible. Uh, not that long ago, we were at a school in Ohio and, uh, and Scott Irvin, the guy I work with, the kid whisperer was talking about, we're going to have the hallways completely quiet. This is an elementary school. Some of these kids are pretty easily distracted. They had kids that were on the autism spectrum. So a lot of noise makes it real tough for, for some of those kids to learn. And he said, well, we'll have quiet hallways in this school. And it was a group of teacher's aides that we were training. One of them said, that is impossible. We will never have kindergartners quiet in the hallway. And right on cue, this group of kindergartners, uh, it was the class of Mr. Bates, uh, a wonderful kindergarten teacher. They walked by perfectly silent, just this like perfect little row of ducks. <laughs> they had been to the library, so they're all hugging their little library books that they had. And uh hundred percent i don't mean kind of quiet they were 100 percent silent in a perfect row walked by on cue and uh and scott just kind of went and, and it, this this person wasn't it's not like they had never been around kids this person just had probably fallen down into this level of expectation of it's just not possible i think healthy organizations especially from the leadership there's just a culture of really high expectations meaning we're going to be uh, we're going to do great work here, whatever it is, and not because we're desperate and we have to meet these margins or we're going to go out of business. It's not that level of high expectation. It's it's this is just who we are. Right. Uh, to me, those are some of the best the best organizations. One more thought on that is. Again, the high expectations don't come because, you know, if we don't do this, you know, we're, we're screwed. It's, it's not that kind of, of thinking. It's this is who we are and it translates into beyond just our work. So a culture of service to others. Uh, mm. We just we just celebrated uh, Martin Luther King Day. And one of the great things that he said, of so many, but one of them he said is anybody can be great because anybody can serve. And mm. if you want to be great, you're serving other people. So that culture of service to others, it might be another underrated one. You know, organizations don't necessarily think about this, but. I think uh, because we're human beings and we're being good to each other, it affects our overall self-concept. That's another way to think about the culture is our overall self-esteem or self-concept. And so how we view ourselves, well, if I'm always helping people and I'm doing great stuff and service to my fellow humans, uh, I start feeling pretty good about that. I feel good about myself and us as an organization. This is just who we are. We serve, we do great things for other people. So I, I could give you a million more, but those are three that, that I tried to pick. People don't always think about. I think high expectations, probably a lot of leaders would say, oh, yeah, I do that. I set a culture of, of, of high expectations. Right. But uh, I don't know. Not, not every organization I deal with are these uh, front of mind sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why I asked the question, because I think a lot of times people think, well, culture, I mean, what is that? I mean, it, it's it's not the weather I can control, the weather just happens, right? I think that's the way a lot of people uh, approach culture. So I think this is interesting to sort of unpack it a bit more. Um, Especially if we're not being very intentional about it. If we're not thinking about it, uh, then it, it does seem to just sort of happen <laughs> and fall yeah. on our heads without us knowing what's going on. Yeah, and I can speak from experience uh, just in, in my last company uh, before I started Third Stage. Um, ironically, even though I have always done change management types of consulting, I did not focus on the internal culture of the company. I just sort of let it happen, right? I, I didn't mean anything good or bad by it. I just thought it'll just, you know, people will just sort of, um, you know, 
march into line and what I expect or whatever. And, and so you just hire a bunch of people without thinking about culture, about how you want to shape it. And it just sort of morphs into something other than what you wanted it to be. And usually when it morphs into something you don't want it to be, it's almost like gravity. It's going to pull you down to something you don't want it to be. It's not, I, I, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I can't imagine an organization just magically like just stumbling into a great culture without that intentionality that you're talking about. I don't think that's possible. Yeah, you, you don't see that. I, I mean, I, there's certainly organizations that just have a lot of great people. Yeah. And so the culture isn't something they have to work as hard on. But because we're always going to be human beings and we're all uh, flawed and have our have our issues. Uh, some of us, I have I have more issues than uh, National Geographic myself. <laughs> the, yeah, flawed. like you said, if I'm not working on it, it's probably going to slide just like a lot of our, our habits, just, uh, you know, as interpersonal habits. If, if I'm not being intentional and working on those things, they're going to slide down and not, not in a good direction. Gravity. It is. That's a good, that's a good analogy. Cause it's, that's going to pull you down if you're not uh, working on it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Good stuff. Thanks, Jed. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation when we return with more transformation ground control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here talking to Jed Hafer from Mission Peace about organizational culture. So let's just jump right back into the conversation. Well, I want to get to a couple of questions here uh, from the audience and, and thanks to everyone who's uh, joining from really all over the world. Um, we have, uh, for example, uh, we've got someone from uh, Pakistan. Uh, looks like we have someone from uh, Qatar, uh, Toronto, where apparently it's snowing. So um, speaking of weather, um, there's, there's some weather um, happening there in Toronto. Um, thanks to uh, Jihad for joining from uh, Istanbul. And then also we have, uh, just as another, another example, uh, Lorraine from Montreal uh, joining here as well. So thanks to everyone for, for joining here today. Um, so quick question here. Um, well, I blocked some spam that's coming through on YouTube. Um, I have to manually block that stuff as it comes through. Um, but here's a, here's a great question that, that I'd be curious to get your your take on uh, Jed, a lot of what you just described is sort of like the aspirational culture, I'd say that, you know, curiosity of learning or curiosity and learning, high expectations, service to others, et cetera. That's sort of a great definition for what makes, what potentially makes a great culture. But when you're talking about changing a culture, like I recognize that I don't have those traits or maybe other traits that I'm looking for or would like to see in my organization. Um, how do you approach, you know, how do you get a broader team to induce the change um, because the, because these are the these people are the ones who make it easy or hard to overachieve change and excellence. So I guess it's just a broader question. How do you get people and leadership within the organization to recognize that 
you know, you need to change and how do you get them to change? What are your thoughts? Well, hopefully I don't get hate mail for saying this, but I actually love meetings where I don't love meetings just for meeting's sake. Nobody does, but I love meetings where we get people together and get them excited about things. And so I would recommend, and we do this, we do this at schools. Let's get everyone together and agree on things that are important to us. Um, core values and what our, what our real mission is. And typically that's something you can watch people get pretty excited about um, and, and let it be a wide open discussion where we can talk in those excited terms and say, well, this is who we are again um, in a, in a school, one of the ones that will come up because we'll give some examples or some suggestions, but uh, we preserve the dignity of every single kid. And, you know, any good educator is going to get fired up about that as a, as a core value because they're like, yes, you know, and they've seen those instances where we didn't preserve the dignity of the kid and it's, it's not good. So that's one thing I, I really recommend is some kind of exercise. I mean, a lot of this is modeled from the leaders, but in that, in that exercise, it's hopefully it's not just the leaders uh, sort of signing on and saying, this is who we are. We're going to, we haven't done this before, but we're going to do some service things. We're going to go out and find people uh, that we can do something for, maybe some people in need and has nothing to do with our products, but we're going to just do it because that's who we are. We're people who care about others. And so, it, you know, kind of this mixture of leading by example and modeling, but also bringing people in. And we will literally a lot of times have the everyone signs physically signs this document and says, this is what we agree to. And for those who are leaders listening, the good news is we can use that later. And I so much rather use this to hold somebody accountable. All right. So in a school, you were screaming at that kid. Can you can you tell me we all agreed we're going to preserve the dignity of our students. Can you tell me how screaming at that kid was preserving a dignity? And it's just as human beings, we don't want to be incongruent with our with our mm-hmm. values. Right. And so that's to me such a better way to hold somebody accountable to the values that they agreed to versus, uh, you know, I caught you breaking this rule and there's this check mark or whatever. I, I don't like to be held accountable that way, but when someone I, who I respect says, Hey, are you, does that line up with, with, with what you really believe and what your values are? It's pretty uh, convicting. And, and so I think it has a, a twofold benefit. We get everyone excited up front saying, this is who we are. And then later, if you want to, uh, to me, it's just a more effective way of, of doing it. I realize we have to formalize it in some cases, but to be able to say, I'm going to use this value as the tool to hold you accountable rather than the rule. Right. Um, and again, I'm not against rules, uh, but, but I think, I think for me, that's just more effective. I'd much rather be challenged that way than, you know, I may or may not think the rule has a really good, uh, reason to exist right but if i physically signed a piece of paper that says this is a value this is what i believe uh pretty hard for me to not feel some at least self-accountability there right now now i think you've answered this um in passing you know throughout the discussion here but maybe i'll ask ask it anyway and we can directly tackle this question which is you know why is culture so important to organizational performance and success because we're individuals. Ultimately, we we make our choices as individual human beings. So my, my first real job, one of my first real jobs, I always had several, but one of my first real jobs was a fast food place. 
And I went in, I got trained by the manager who was a, a high, high expectation, uh, do everything the right way person. And she said, this is how we do fries. And she trained me on that way. And, you know, it's the first thing you learn. And I was like, okay, I know how to do fries. It's pretty simple. She left and my fellow employees came around and they said, let us show you the easier way. The way she showed you was fine, but actually some, there's some unnecessary steps there that don't really accomplish anything. This is a little shortcut. This is the easier way to do it. This is how we do it. And I remember being in that immediate dilemma of, oh no, <laughs> what right. I was told uh, does not match what I'm uh, experiencing. And it is, there was almost a panic feeling. And mm -hmm. I know you're on the edge of your seats. And so, <laughs> yes, I did it the right way, uh, which immediately caused in, in, in the culture, you get those kind of like, oh, you know, teacher's pet, you know, kiss up. So the way you were doing comments. it from your the person that left, that was the right way, not the way the other people. Yeah, I did, it the, I did it the right way. And then my my coworkers instantly. Uh, so the, 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 that's a long way of saying if if there's negativity in the culture, it puts that individual, any individual who encounters that, oh, we complain here. Okay, I'm going to, uh, you know, I at least have the temptation to follow along with that. Oh, we take shortcuts here. Okay, I have the temptation to follow along with that. If nothing else, maybe I don't, uh, my coworkers are probably not going to have sat down and say, oh, we're really going to work on a culture of high expectations here and try to influence me that way like, like the, the leaders would. And so it's, it's sort of what you said before. If I'm not addressing it and really trying to do these proactive things to make it positive, it's probably going to slide down to some level into negativity. And I think we talked about last time, the most common, I think, is just uh, complaining. Uh, we're, we're all uh, much, much beset and put upon and, and uh, oppressed and victimized. Uh, oh, it's so hard. And that's, that's the beginning. When I start stop appreciating, wow, this is an awesome thing that I get to do with these awesome people I get to work with. And I start finding myself complaining about it. The unfortunate thing about that is my brain hears that. Mm. And my brain hears this sort of unquestioned, because as much as we can filter out other things, it's hard to filter out our own voice. This is why things like affirmations work, right? right. So I hear my own voice joining in in this chorus of complaining. And pretty soon, oh, this is a terrible place. Uh, so it negativity can just be so contagious. And I think that's why we have to be on top of this, trying to keep the culture healthy because it's just like the human body. You know, if I'm not working on keeping my body healthy, some, some unhealthy stuff is going to start happening. Yeah. And, you're, uh, you're and not just it can just be the, it can be the death of an organization. Yeah. So speaking of that, do you, do you have examples of uh, that you've seen in your career or, or maybe one in particular that stands out of situations where you saw, culture drag the company down yeah i, I worked for a nonprofit that helped kids that were in trouble for many years and by definition i mean we, we paid the pay was terrible and one of the one of the beliefs was well that will filter out anybody who might be here for the wrong reasons right if they're here for the money they're not gonna they're not gonna stay go do something that's much easier that also pays better because it was a hard job and it also paid poorly Right. Um, so we tended to get really good people with great hearts or we'd get kind of the other end of the spectrum They're they're here cause they couldn't get any other job or they're desperate or, or some other 
you know, le- less positive motivator that brought him in. And so that culture was always a tug of war between the, the true believer. I would do anything to help these kids. And I really believe in their success, super positive people on one side and pretty negative, pretty toxic people on the other side. And it, I could, I could sometimes watch it. It was almost like watching a tug of war. And unfortunately, yeah, there were times always ebbed and flowed, never was perfect, never was so bad that we, that we couldn't take good care of the kids. But I watched it at times be, be the, the, the flag got pulled <laughs> too far in this bad direction. And it was really harmful, especially to the, to the, the good employees. And I hate to, you know, sound like I was judging everybody, but you have your employees who really care and the kids could tell very quickly who really cares and who's just doing this because it's a job or whatever. I think that's true in a lot of fields. Those yeah. people who didn't really care could actually have a pretty big impact on the people who were there for the right reasons and did really care. And, you know, it was never, uh, it was never all or nothing, but you could really see that ebb and flow. And sometimes it could be pretty destructive. I think we lost some really good people because they would say, I just can't be around these people who are so negative all the time. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. And, and um, you know, I, you alluded in, in that example there and also the, the French fry example, you know, making the French fries, you sort of alluded to this thought that, you know, if you have someone up above a leader within the organization that whether they're deliberately doing or not, um, they're having some sort of impact on shaping the culture. In the case of the French fries, it sounds like someone, um, who, who was above you sort of affirmed that you were doing it the right way. And the other people were, they were telling you to do it a different way were wrong, or that wasn't the way the company wanted you to be doing it. It sounds like, so leadership and management, how does that all fit in or have you seen that uh, affect a culture as well? Yeah, I think I need to remember as a leader, I, I ought to be giving people some whys. It's another reason to do this kind of who we are, core values. What are we excited about in our mission? exercise getting everybody to to agree kind of sign off on it uh for most people without a why uh it's pretty easy to slide down um you know again in a bad direction of whether i've worked with people who quit who quit smoking for instance um you know they went to the doctor and they see this really scary picture of their lung and they say you love your kids right okay and now all of a sudden i have a super powerful why if i have a really powerful why I'm going to do those things that I need to do as a leader. I've got to be giving my people uh, the, the, the strong why so that, and it can't just be making money. It can't just be so that you individually make money or that we as a, as a company make money. It's got to be something more than that. Uh, that to me, I think is the best protector against the French fry scenario. <laughs> If those fellow employees all understood, oh, there is a good reason to do it the right way, and we care about that reason, uh, then they're they're probably less prone to take those uh, shortcuts. So I, I think that's that's what a leader can do to kind of guard against bad culture creep. I don't know if we just invented a term. <laughs> the, the creeping in of the sort of contagious among the employees, negative stuff. If we all are uh, at least to some degree, focused on the good reason why, the good rationales for why we do things this way, the right way. I think that helps insulate us from some of that. All right, good stuff. Thanks, Jed. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation when we return with more Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. 
So for all you listeners of Transformation Ground Control, I wanted to remind you of a premier annual event that we host every year. It's called Digital Stratosphere. It's a virtual conference that we've actually shifted to virtual since the pandemic. And we're having our next Digital Stratosphere conference online virtually uh, February 8th through the 10th. So I encourage you to register for that. We're going to, myself and others from the third stage team will be hosting sessions, facilitating sessions about software selection, how to implement software, what some of the best practices are, change management, digital strategy, program management, all the stuff you need to know to make your digital transformation successful in 2022 and beyond. This event's for you. Registration's free. We encourage you and your teams to join. Um, If you're not able to join us live, which we hope you will, but if you can't join us live, we'll also have, uh, we'll make the recordings available to you. So be sure to register either way. Even if you can't join all the sessions live, you'll at least get access to the library of recordings. So I encourage you to check that out. There's a link below in this podcast, wherever you're listening or watching. Uh, there's a link below to register. And you can also just go to our website at Third Stage, and it's spelled T-H-I-R-D stage dash consulting.com. At the top of the page, you'll see an icon for registering for Digital Stratosphere. So be sure to check it out. Digital Stratosphere, February 8th through 10th. Hope to see you there. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here talking to Jed Hafer from Mission Peace about organizational culture. So let's just jump right back into the conversation. So in your example of the, you know, the schools or the, and I'll maybe generalize a little bit more and say, you know, nonprofits or, or any organization where employees have a higher sense of meaning or purpose, you know, beyond just a paycheck, beyond just a job. Um, Let's assume it's an organization like that, whether it's a school or nonprofit or whatever. Um, how is it then that you get a bunch of good people that mean well, that have a sense of purpose? How could an organization like that p- possibly have that, that what you call it, culture creep? The culture creep. How could you possibly have that if, if we all mean well, we're all good intentioned, we're all trying to do the right thing? How could, a, how could a culture possibly become toxic in that sort of environment? I think it's because we're human beings with uh, free will. And we can get our feelings hurt. I would say in the in the more positive organizations, and I'd probably make the case that every organization either is or should be, or at least has the potential to be like that. That that what we do, there's a higher calling and a higher purpose to it, even if it just looks like oh, logistically we're just making these widgets. No, uh, you know the, the healthiest and best organizations that I know, they still have a sense of mission that we're going to add value to people's lives. We're going to improve. We're going to make the world a better place. I don't think that's limited to just, yeah, I did. I started in the nonprofit world and then sort of moved into a lot of uh, education organizations, but I've seen companies that you wouldn't necessarily off the top of your head say, Oh, that's a super benevolent organization, but then they are in some cases they're doing some of the most good uh, in the world, even if it's just, uh, generosity and I, I know you know this um, but because I have seen again organizations full of good people I think the interpersonal conflict uh, that thin-skinnedness that we can have or we get our feelings hurt um, truly sometimes we're like little kids and like so-and-so got positive attention for doing that thing and I'm over here going what about me right uh, just again that we're human beings i think it's it's certainly possible uh, if, if you, you could probably see this in a family mm-hmm. you know absolutely wonderful people loving people and oh they don't talk to each other right <laughs> they, they hate each other they got to fight at thanksgiving a few years ago and they don't talk anymore 
you know, how is that even possible? Because they're both the nicest people. Of course, that can that can happen in an organization. Again, I think the prevention for that is partly just the awareness that we always need to be working on and cognizant of this kind of nebulous in the air thing that is the culture. Um, I'm not necessarily a fan of forced uh, team stuff that you know, a lot, it causes a lot of people to roll their eyes. And I was one of those eye rollers when bosses said, we're going to do this thing. Uh, that said, I think healthy organizations, they're always putting out things that help us just get along with each other and appreciate one another better as, as human beings. That There's another one we could add in appreciation. Appreciation mm-hmm. is often an antidote for that infighting and negativity that, that can creep in, even um, between two good people or two good departments. I bet you've seen this. This is a great department full of really good individuals that do great work. This is a great department full of good individuals. That do great because of some dynamic, uh, they get at odds and they don't handle that conflict or that disagreement well. I know mm. last time I was on, we talked about kind of modeling as the leader handling being disagreed with uh, in, a, in a real healthy way. That's really good for my, my people to see. But I, I think sometimes it's just that, that little seed of division and all of a sudden even really nice people can be at each other's throats. At least in my family, that's the way it goes. <laughs> you know, that's, that's interesting you say that because uh, one of the common phenomena we see in any organization, um, whether it's for-profit, uh, non-profit, government, public sector, whatever, or education, um, you see these organizations where they have people that mean well. They, they want to support the overall vision of the company. Um, they might believe in the change that they're going through as an organization, whether it's a digital transformation or org restructure, whatever the case may be. Um, but yet, and so you get this mindset, this sort of a false sense of security that this change isn't going to be that difficult. Our, our team's on board and they're, they're, they're willing to go through the hard work to make the change. But then you made the point about your feelings getting hurt along the way. And then you start to realize as a human, um, you're taking away some of my responsibilities or you're changing my job. You're somehow disrupting my world and my feelings are hurt. And now I start to undermine, it starts to undermine my commitment or my excitement about this change initiative we're going through. So even in the best intentioned organizations, if you don't mitigate that, um, that stuff sort of starts to seep to the surface over, over time. And a lot of, I think a lot of executives fail to see that in organization. And if I'm working with that company, I really would try to zero in on what's causing uh, fear and anxiety because mm-hmm. fear and anxiety uh, kind of sends us to the dumber parts of our brain, uh, just like anger does. Right. And of course, if there's change, I'm going to feel some, some trepidation, some anxiety. Um, so doing a good job, and this is one of the things I know you do, uh, organization, does a good job uh, up front and proactively of helping mitigate some of that fear and anxiety and letting people know it is going to be changed, but it's also going to be okay. And on the other end of it, uh, things are going to be better. We're going to be better. Um, again, easy, easy to say, but sometimes it's hard to, to, to alleviate those fears for people. So that's what I look for is during a change is, is the fear causing individuals to behave in ways that they, they wouldn't normally and how can we help them with that, with that fear and the unpredictable, mm. uh, the unknown? If people, you know, I always think about people's top fears. Uh, you know, the, the unknown is, is often out there because 
we don't know what it is. And then another one that comes up a lot is, uh, is, is public speaking. If you think about that and, and doing a lot of public speaking, I enjoy it immensely. And I've thought, why is that such a great fear? And I realized it's, I don't think it's even public speaking. I think it's public embarrassment mm. that people are really afraid of. And so that's just a scenario that they imagine that would be really embarrassing. I imagine having to sing karaoke and, and there's no, you know, there's no alcohol. That's, it's not even karaoke at that point, but yeah, if I had to sing in front of a bunch of people, that would be the, the scary scenario for me. So I don't think it's really public. I think it's public embarrassment. And the relevance here is in my organization, maybe right now I'm perceived as someone who knows what the heck they're doing, right? I do a good job. I'm perceived as competent. And I, we see this with, uh, with kids in school a lot. I have this sense of how competent I am. I have a self-concept based on, am I good at this or am I not? I've been doing this thing and now I feel like I'm pretty good at it. And now you are going to ask me to do this new thing. And a huge fear that we don't always think about is I'm going to look like a fool in front of these people who have historically, I feel like I've earned their respect and they see me as a capable person. So you just ask me to go from doing something I feel good about to something I'm scared to do. And, and in some sense, it's going to be in front of because the results are, you know, they're going to be put out there in front of my peers. Well, that's the very thing that kids, some kids, their worst nightmare is having to go up and solve a, a problem, you know, up on, on the board in front of the class. Sometimes as an organization, that's kind of what we're doing. And in many cases, we're doing it to our best people. Oh, yeah. you're the really capable person. We'll give you this new task you'll be great at it. And we don't think enough about how scary that might be for that person. So yeah, I think the short answer of what to look for when people are maybe not behaving uh, the way we hoped during a change is what's, what's scaring them, what's, what's hurting them or what's scaring them or what in the past has hurt or scared them that this is reminiscent of, because again, as human beings, our, uh, our body keeps this score of past hurts, and uh, it's why maybe you and I might have a team that we love and they get a lead and we go, oh, no, <laughs> they're going right. to have seen this before. Uh, it's, seriously, if, if it's reminiscent of something that, that I went through before, and that's another thing we're up against. Some people have been in an organization that wasn't super healthy before mm. and they're going, oh, no, here we go again. I've seen this yeah. before. We're going to turn on each other and, you know, some of that stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, what about speaking of turning on each other? Here's a here's a question from uh, someone over on Twitch. So I'm glad to see that we have uh, people watching on the Twitch uh, stream. Some people my age don't even know what that is. Twitch. I don't know what it is. I've never I never used it. But, uh, <laughs> I do have an account on there. That I have I have kids, so I know what it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I vaguely I, I suppose I know what it is, but I don't use it very often. But uh, question here is a is a great one, which sort of alludes or maybe builds on or takes a different direction from what you were just saying, Jed which is if every organization is just made out of people who care about the mission, where should society have people who are universally, universally malicious and negative? So, or maybe I'll just maybe simplify that a little bit more. What do you do as an organization if you, you just steer clear of malicious and negative people? Are people really negative and malicious? Are they negative and malicious in certain environments? Or what do you, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, this gets into kind of a big uh, philosophical question. Uh, let me start at the at the small level, at the micro level. My organization, I've had to do cost-benefit analysis before, and once in a while, <laughs> I've always said up front, give me the good person, 
give me the nice person, give me the person who wants to learn. And I'll, I'll take that person over the super skilled person, you know, within reason, because I can probably train this person, especially if they have the, the right attitude. And at some point they'll, they'll catch up and be more valuable than the super skilled person. I've also been in organizations where a person had a really specific and valuable skill and it was a chicken or the egg. Like, did they become this way because they're, they're somewhat irreplaceable. And so they got this attitude or are they that way? And then they just happen to have this, this skill. And now it, you know, it, it, again, one sort of feeds the other always as a leader, you're, you're going to do some cost benefit analysis, but the organization I was in for the longest, we started out kind of erring on the side of, Oh, that person's too valuable. We basically have to let them get away with being sneaky mm-hmm. to everybody else. And we basically have to let them get away with, with ignoring rules that everyone else is expected to follow. Um, not, this was not personally my decision, but the, the administrative team. And at one point we had a huge turnover at the administrative team and the new leader came in and said, no, we're not doing that. I'll find somebody there's, you know, the world is a big place. There's a lot of people. And there was much more of a propensity to, to jettison the toxic person. And it was remarkable. Well, one of the, one of the most telling examples I can think of is we almost immediately replaced that irreplaceable negative person with somebody who became so valuable because they were exact opposite end of the spectrum, super uh, kind and loving and really uh, generous heart and just good person toward the rest of the organization. And then we were looking back going, I can't believe we put up with that negative person for years. Yeah. And years. So on the micro level, I, I would say as an organization, again, within reason, probably better to err on the side of saying, this is just not a good fit for that person. If they're really, um, I mean, I want to have some compassion and say, maybe are they going through something? Um, Experienced this recently, person that I perceived as, well, this person's just super negative, found out what they were going through and and changed a lot of my attitude of, uh, wow, you know, if I was going through that, I don't know that I'd be behaving even as as well as they are. Um, At the the same time, yeah, I think think sometimes as leaders, we have to go, this person is too destructive to our culture. Um, too toxic to their fellow employees and they just have to go Uh, on the the broader level of society you know I've been working with kids for a really long time and I'm definitely a hopeful person that people can change there's good brain research on this now about uh, neuroplasticity Uh, a guy named Dr. Daniel Amen I'm a big fan of his stuff has has come out with all these brain scans and said you know we used to say oh you know you got brain damage there's nothing we can do or the brain can't change you know, he came along and said, I've seen more brain scans than any person in human history. And yeah, there is there is a such thing as neuroplasticity. The brain can change. People can change. So, yeah, I believe in, in hope and I believe in people changing. That doesn't mean I'm going to hold on to a person who's who's dragging my organization uh, down and down and down. Um, we could get into a whole other discussion about about prisons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> to me, I don't think anybody gets better in prison, but the nice thing about it is they're not hurting anybody else while they're there. And so if, if I start thinking about, oh, is this making that person better? The answer is often nope. But same thing as if we suspend a kid from a school. Um, well, that kid didn't learn anything while he was suspended from school. 
yeah, but he also didn't hurt any of the other students here at, at the school while he was gone. Uh, so that's the uh, that's the the calculus that we're doing, right? Is it doing more harm for everyone else? And if so, I'd, I'd rather my compassion has to extend to the rest of my people too. And if this person's really, really harmful to the rest of the people, I got to think about them too. Right. All right. Good stuff. Thanks, Jed. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation when we return with more Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here talking to Jed Hafer from Mission Peace about organizational culture. So let's just jump right back into the conversation. Now, what about, here's, here's an interesting question. It's, it's actually a, a, a different spin on a question that I was going to ask you, but I, I like the spin better, although I am going to uh, shorten it. They truncate the, the question here a bit, um, but I'll, maybe I'll try to paraphrase it a bit because um, it, it actually won't show the whole question here because it is a bit longer. But general question is, um, you know, to go through a cultural shift, let's just say I'm part of an organization where there are some cultural warts or things I want to improve or fix or change over time. Um, but I've got some short-term profit goals and incentives I need to hit, and that, that's going to take a certain amount of my time, and that might be my short-term priority. How do I balance those shorter-term, short-sighted profit motive-driven things versus something that is a longer-term potential advantage on the cultural side? How do, I, how do you find that balance, or how do you, how do you encourage or, or um, convince people that they need to go through that change? You have know, been in that exact situation where uh, as like a middle management, I'm saying to the bosses who control and then look closely at the money side, trust me, please let me hire this good person. Please let me create this position that we need. Please let me incentivize this really good person to stay. I promise you it'll pay off in the long run. <laughs> I've been that guy. And I would say, most, most, most of the time I was right. I was able to, in the long run, say, see, I told you, thank you for trusting me. Uh, I mean, obviously, I don't want to see a company go out of business because on the front end, the cost of doing this stuff is, is just too much. But I really do believe if we think longer term and we think bigger picture, which is happening less and less in our world. Um, you know, you see stats on, on how quickly people will leave a job um, versus, you know, our, our parents' generation, they'd stay in the same organization for 40 years or whatever. And now it's more like 40 minutes sometimes right. um, be, because a lot more people are doing things 
digitally and remotely. It's just the, the, the loyalty of that, that part of the culture, that loyalty, we're all in this together is lessened. But at the same time, as a leader, I've, I've almost never regretted the front end investment. And I would say, and I was, I was, I was reading the question. It's kind of small letters, but I was reading it as, as you were reading that investment is usually about the time and the energy and the prioritization that the leader is doing than it is necessarily um, th- this huge financial commitment. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how much money the average organization that, that you work with is spending on culture, you know, if it's like the the uh, donut, <laughs> the donut fund and the once a year retreat, or I don't, I don't know what people are, are doing. I, I know that to me, the biggest investment comes from that leader going around and making contact with people and checking in and intentionally modeling some of these things that we've talked about. It doesn't really cost anything. Yeah. It costs your time, but you're going to, you're going to spend that time doing something uh, so especially if it's not a hard investment, I think yeah. it's super easy to justify. Yeah. If all of a sudden I'm going into the red doing some of this stuff, you know, certainly I got, I got to look at that, but I, as the person who's been in a really tough position of the middle kind of pulling from both sides of it, I have, uh, I have mostly had really good long-term results. Uh, I remember a couple people in particular, we just had to come up with more to keep them because they were so good and my boss later was like wow that was that was a really really good decision because i see how incredibly valuable they are and there's you know there's a small number of people in the world who were who, who would be that valuable in that role right well it, it almost um it brings me back to the the first analogy or one of the first analogies you brought up here today which is setting the uh, creating the weather it's like if your if your journey is to go towards success, profitability, whatever your short term goal might be, you've got the short term short sighted goal. Do you want to do it in a blizzard and a snowstorm with ice and dangerous conditions, or would you rather do it on a beach where it's sunny yeah. and warm and not, not too hot? And so it's sort of like you're setting the backdrop for what your journey towards those short term goals are going to be. And so it seems and like if that's- you've got those people who are just sunshine. You gotta you gotta take good care of them, and and then you you should also be one of those people. If if you're the person who's charged with keeping the culture positive, that means I sometimes have to remember I like people, but sometimes I have to remind my face that I like people. <laughs> right. I need to be that person who's going around and being and being sunshine. Yeah. So if I have an organization that's not sunshine, but I want it to be, or I want it to be better in whatever, whatever that, whatever those aspirations might be. Why is it so hard to change culture? Why don't more organizations do it? Why aren't more organizations successful at it? Why is it so hard? I think sometimes you need an outside perspective at the, at the, at the risk of sounding uh, self-serving and, and, uh, and third stage serving. Uh, <laughs> it's Okay. I'll let it slide. In the old in the olden days when they were on ships, they needed to have, you know, some fixed point that they could you can't tell where you're going and unless it's by comparison with something else. And I think sometimes that's what the outside perspective gives you is you it's hard to tell accurately your culture or where you're drifting without some either way to measure it or way to view it. 
that's just beyond yourself. Um, again, as human beings, we all have our known self, right? our, our own uh, self-awareness of, of who we are and what we, what we think we look like, what we think we sound like. An outside perspective, I mean, this is why coaches think even Michael Jordan had a coach and he didn't just have, he didn't have a coach for the team, but he also had a personal coach working with him. I just watched a little documentary about uh, Dirk Nowitzki, who was a phenomenal basketball player. His entire career had someone working intensely with him one-on-one and he could have just said, Hey, I'm one of the best in the world. I'm going to do my right. thing. So having that other perspective, that outside uh, view of how we're doing, I think is super important. That's, that's one of the easy things I'd recommend is get some perspective that's outside of your organization because you're you're never doing you're never quite accurate with how we're doing right if you don't have something outside of your ship that you can that you can use to to measure that a little bit um and then i'll I'll go back to intentionality wins the day and intentionality pulls us to greatness so if it's my company and i just set this goal we are going to be this way and I'm going to bring in and draw in people who also uh, see that as an important goal. The nice thing about mirror neurons is the good stuff is contagious too. Mm-hmm. Those things that we do intentionally, uh, it's it's pretty neat to see. And I get to see this in schools a lot. Uh, this teacher has established this procedure or this habit and all the kids are doing it. Pretty soon you look down the hall and the other other groups of kids are doing it too. And uh, that good stuff being contagious is, is really fun to watch and it, and it helps you get momentum. And then you can look back and say, look where we were, you know, look how, look how many great improvements we've made. Right. Right. Well, this is good. So, so maybe just as a sort of a capstone question to tie this all together. Um, I think, I think you've done a really good job of explaining what culture is and what it means, how to change it, how to be deliberate about it, the intentionality behind it, all that stuff. But what if I'm a, so I I get the general concepts, but now I kind of step back and look at my own organization and I'm thinking about culture and I don't really know where to start. You know, is it a good, I don't even know if maybe I don't have a good understanding. Is it a goal, an effective culture, ineffective culture? Do I need to change it? How do I change it? I don't even know what, I I don't know where to start. So what, what do you recommend to a team or to an organization that might just be just now starting to think about culture for the first time? A super easy thing that you can do, and you know, some some organizations will have an HR department that has tools for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you don't, there are ways to send out anonymous uh, surveys or requests for feedback. And I like I like an initial round. I mean, both both all all information can be valuable information. Someone tells you, you know, your feet stink. You're like, okay, that's valuable information. I can do something with that. Uh, so the first round is an anonymous round in a sense of we put out a way for people to give us this feedback. We're soliciting it. It's safe. Um, they, they feel safe in being really honest. Um, there will come around where we want the more specific and we want to know the source and, and dig into it a little bit more. But I mean, the, the easiest thing in the world to be, you know, set up uh, and you probably have uh, 10 different tools that you might recommend. But, you know, some I'm, I'm picturing some kind of, uh, of a survey that people fill out and and we assure them and it, it's because it's true. Uh, we're just going to get the overall feedback 
uh, and, and it's, it's, it's safe for you to be truthful. Right. Um, that's a, that's an easy, easy thing to do. Um, doesn't, and, and I'd keep it short and, but to the important information that you're trying to solicit, um, just that step alone, some organizations are surprised in, in either direction. They're surprised how happy and, uh, and feel, uh, feeling good about the organization people are, or, or the other way. And if they knew whose answers were, were whose, they'd probably be even more surprised. Uh, but then, then that that next level of evaluation of our organization again, something I know that you help uh, companies do, and to me that is fun stuff. Um, it's not it as easy, and sometimes it can be unpleasant. But just like our own, you know, in our own lives, we become more self-aware. We're probably going to have better luck making the changes that we need to make. If I uh, if I just never look in the mirror <laughs> or right. I never do anything to, to check on how I'm doing. I probably am going to lose sight of some things. Uh, it doesn't mean I need to be obsessed and organizations can do this too. They can go too far the other way and just get absolutely obsessed with feedback. And they're always looking in the mirror so much that they, they don't do other things uh, as much as they should. But that's a, that, a good first step is, is an honest. Uh, and, and the reason I say start with the, anonymous is it gives people it kind of opens the, the the door to there's only one reason in the world i would i would ask that question and let you answer it anonymously i really do want the answer right right so it's a, it's a sincere move on the part of the the organization yeah yeah absolutely and i think that you're right that, that assessing and having that objective view of your culture the strengths of the weaknesses and then stepping back and looking at is that what we intended? Is that what we want? Is that what's best for us to achieve whatever our longer term goals are? And then figuring out almost like the dials, you know, on a, on a control board, you know, you're, you're sort of tweaking the, the culture the way you want it in certain dimensions, whether it's uh, a lot of the things you mentioned, the curiosity, level of curiosity or the level of expectations, accountability, um, whatever it is. I mean, every culture has their own way of defining it, but you, you sort of have to define what you are today, what you want to be, and then ultimately how you're going to, how to transition that culture over time. And just understand that you'll never get those dials quite perfect. You'll yeah. always be adjusting them. Uh, that frustrates some people, uh, but that's that's the uh, journey of life. We we, we never really uh, quite arrive. That's that's how I am with my sound system at home. I can never get it exactly how I want, or the song changes, and then I have to I have to change it again because it doesn't sound quite right to me. So uh, it's way a good way. But to you look can at. get it pretty darn good. You can, and I'm thinking about it. I guess that's the key is you're all, if you're thinking about it, you're focused on it, you're, you're, you're consciously aware. I think that intentionality that you talked about early on is super important because it's, it's deliberate. I mean, you, you are intentionally doing certain things to drive a certain type of culture or you're not, in which case the gravity that we talked about will, will sort of suck it down to the worst possible place. So it's a, And then the neatest thing will happen is a new person comes into your organization and they go, wow, what what a great place this is. Just the feel here is so great. Or someone comes into Eric's, I go into Eric's house and I say, wow, this sounds great. Mine sounds like a tin can. Uh, you've really, really worked on this and this is super impressive. It, it's nice because once in a while you do, you get somebody and it doesn't even mean that their organization was horrible or toxic. But when someone comes in and says, wow, we just didn't have this and I so appreciate it. What a, what a great feeling. And then now you've got a new person who's a fan and is already in that place of appreciation. 
and excitement and uh, your culture just probably got better. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing to see that that improvement uh, begets more improvement. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you, Jed. Thanks for being here. Great conversation. Good to have you on the show again, as always. And uh, as always, as was the case last time Jed was on the show, we have a lot to think about and a lot to unpack from what uh, he just talked about. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dive into this whole concept of culture a little bit more. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 52. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, and all the audio podcast platforms. Um, thanks for being here today. Um, so we just had this discussion with Jed right before the break. And Kyler, what were your thoughts? What were some of the takeaways you had from that conversation? Yeah, well, as a mother of two toddlers, I definitely need the kid whisperer. So that is something that is a service that I absolutely need. But um, in all seriousness, I did kind of activate some of his tactics in my parenting that that evening and it we had a very smooth night i have a one-year-old and a almost three-year-old and so usually if in that that period of we're hungry dinner time works over that type of thing it can get a little wild in our house and i i really was kind of i went up to him and i'm like okay guys you know we're gonna have a great dinner we're gonna all cook together your favorite food and we're gonna have like a very successful night we're gonna read books and we're gonna do bedtime and it went really well so <laughs> His example of, you know, setting a positive intention so everybody knows what they're doing. And we know that purpose is important, right? We know that setting an alignment, executive alignment when it comes to digital transformation is important. But I've never really heard it on how important it is to do it with a positive spin and to get people excited about it. So I wanted to ask you, you know, is that kind of part of your process when you go in and help with strategy sessions is to say like this needs to be messaged in a really positive way and it needs to, you know, be something that employees are excited and motivated about. Yeah, I, I, I'd say yes, but, you know, it's, it's yes, you want to be positive and intentionally positive, but you don't want to be overly positive to the point where you're not being realistic. I mean, you, you do want to be realistic and set expectations wherever they need to be set. Um, and you also need to be positive in a way that speaks to the individuals within your organization. So in other words, if you come in over the top with this message of how, you know, we're going through this transformation and it's going to help our, it's going to help our stock price. It's really going to help us maximize shareholder value. Okay. I, I think we all, you know, no matter who we are in an organization, we kind of know that's the purpose of being in business if we're a for-profit or especially a publicly traded organization. 
But does that really matter to me at the end of the day as an individual? And so that's a question you have to ask. Maybe it's more important. Maybe for me personally, I'm thinking more about my job, my security, my purpose and meaning in this organization longer term. I don't necessarily get super excited by the fact that I'm going to increase shareholder value. Plus, that's just so high up there in the clouds yeah. and nebulous. I don't know how much mm-hmm. I actually, am, you know, most people don't have a, a noticeable direct impact on shareholder value. So I've got to make it, it needs to be positive, but it needs to be relevant to me. That Those are the two things that, that sort of jump out. But I do have to ask you, have you ever read, we didn't talk about it here at Jed this time, but last time we talked a lot about love and logic on, on the parenting side. No, have you no. Have you read that book or is that something you're, do you use that style of parenting at all? We've never read that book, though we should. It's interesting. I did a series on digital transformation and parenting with a a lot of our stakeholders that we've actually never published because I didn't finish it by the end of the year, but we will at some point. (laughs) Um, And it it really gave an, an interesting, obviously we know that being a parent right now is incredibly difficult just from a logistic standpoint, especially as Jed said, schools, the education system has gone through arguably one of the biggest transformations from doing a model that was completely in person to now doing a completely opposite. And that has turmoil all over it and parenting too. In our community where we live, we had looked at doing different childcare options and we have at least a year long wait list for anywhere that you want to, you know, do a daycare center, do an in-home daycare, just because of the, you know, the overall demand for it and the lack of people willing to be in that industry right now. Um, so I think that that's, you know, an interesting kind of correlation, but we definitely would love to, I should not speak for my husband because he probably wouldn't, but he would love to, if I would love to read that book. Cause I know you and Kelly read it um, as parents of toddlers, right? Yeah. Yeah, there were toddlers at the time. Um, they're not so young and cute nowadays. <laughs> they're, they're still cute, you know. They're still kids, but uh, they're not two and five like they were when my wife and I first met. But I, I, um, I had read. I can't remember if I mentioned it with Jed just this last time we talked, just today when we talked, or the the last time before. Uh, but it was a book I read when my wife and I first got engaged because I was like, well, I don't have kids of my own, so I better figure out this whole parenting thing pretty quick because I'm not going to have a lot of time to <laughs> figure it out uh, on the job. So, um, but it was uh, super interesting. So, and, and the reason I brought it up with Jed is um, one of the two times, if not both times that we had him on the show was uh, the fact that that's, he worked for Love and Logic. I, th- I think he mentioned it at the very least, he mentioned it in his, his introduction. Um, so he spent, I think, 10 years working for Love and Logic Institute. So he's, he's sort of an expert in parenting and schooling and developing of children and all that stuff, which again, you know, you figure if you can be, if you can master the art and the science of raising and educating kids, um, and you can do that well, you know, that, so much of that applies to organizations too. So that's why I thought, I, I love his way of thinking, because it's not your traditional way of thinking about organizational culture and transformation settings. We, t- we tend to gravitate more to the you know, the training of new technologies and stuff like that. We don't think about the the core fundamental foundational stuff we've got to get to. Yeah, absolutely. I loved his um, Jerry Springer effect example of, you know, the teacher, they had aligned on their overall purpose, right? They were here to, you know, build whole human beings in, you know, a, a very uh, supportive and nurturing environment. And then this one teacher, you know, was, was yelling at this other kid. And I, I thought that was a, a good correlation between the work that we do, because sometimes we can have clients 
many client services industries, the client thinks you do nothing all day except for work for them. Um, right. And there's been so many times that I've watched my husband, Adam, who is on the third stage team, um, work with a very difficult and charged, if you will, client. And I'm in the background like, who is this person? And, you know, he, he is always just level set. And I ask him, you know, how does that not make you mad? And he would be like, what would be the purpose of, of getting mad? That's nobody's going to accomplish what they need to accomplish if, you know, I scream at the guy, but I do have the opportunity to be a sounding board, listen to him or her, and really di dissect what is the biggest issue here by what they say. Um, so I, I wondered if you had kind of had that similar train of thought when he was talking about just that overall staying calm and collected and addressing conflict that way. Yeah, I I think it's sound uh, advice. It's a good it's a good takeaway that he has. That's why he's such a good team member on our team because we, we tend to think alike when it comes to that stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I guess I'd add to that too that, you know, part of – Part of going through a transformation, either as a consultant like we are, or if you're working internally uh, on an internal team, is you, you have to empathize. I mean, you just have to understand where the person's coming from, and you, and you have to really not take it personally, not react, and understand why what's making this person tick. And in our case, as consultants, a lot of times there's something else going on underneath the surface. They might be angry and frustrated, but a lot of times it's, it's a general frustration with the pressure that they're under. And when I say they, I mean the clients, because they're, they've got a bullseye on them. They're under all this pressure to be the executive sponsor of some massive transformation that's never been undertaken at their organization before. And there's just a lot going on there with our clients. And you have to understand that. If you can't understand that and you can't empathize, you're not going to be a good consultant. And the same is true when you're internally. You know, you have to be thinking about why are people pushing back on this change or why are people being, quote unquote, difficult you know, when it comes to this change and you've got to really understand, well, what there's, you have to assume the best to start, you start there and think, okay, there's probably, it's probably not a, a bad thing, or it's, it's probably not coming from a negative space. It's probably coming from somewhere positive, but somewhere along the way, something's getting disrupted. Like someone feels threatened or someone feels like their job's at stake, or they're, they're not secure in their role as a result of this transformation. You have to understand that to be able to understand, well, how do I not react to that? But how do I have a plan to mitigate those risks or concerns or fears or whatever it is. So I, I think it's a really good point that empathy and listening and understanding is super important in these sorts of transitions or, or transformations. Absolutely. And that, and that goes along with what he was talking about of establishing that trust, even from a brain chemistry standpoint, that just the overall human experience, if they trust the experience, they're much more likely to go along with outside recommendations, to you know, make sure that they're holding their teams accountable if they're in that state of trust, as opposed to in that state of fear. Because as Jed said, you know, our biggest fear as human beings is that ostracization or that failure point. Um, and I think a lot of times that's what we do as consultants is really try and garner that trust so that we can give them and pass them our best recommendations and then kind of mitigate the risk of fear or fear-based behaviors in these transitions that might cause disruption to the business and then also impact the over, overall success of the transformation and the ultimately the revenue of the company. Um, so I, I wanted to see if I could ask you the big question that Jed had is, is what is 
what is your why for leading third stage? Yeah, so the, the why is because, first of all, I, on a personal level, I just love consulting. So I knew I wanted to start a consulting company, but great. There's thousands of consulting companies out there. What, you know, why, why third stage? Why this one and why this way that we've decided? And so that is the second, probably more important reason, which is that even though I love consulting, there's a lot about it I don't like. And what I don't like is the fact that so much of it is biased and um, incentivized to act in ways that go against what clients actually need. Um, so there's, so, you know, the whole industry was built around this whole ecosystem of consulting firms that focus on and support certain types of technologies. And it's a great way to build a technology company. If I if I were to start a software company tomorrow, that's exactly what I would do. I'd go get a bunch of evangel uh, evangelists that are consultants that are going to get paid and make good money if I make good money. And that's how I'm going to build out my ecosystem. So that's great. It's great for the software companies. But then you turn around and look at the customers you're serving, and they have all these different options out there. They've got a million different directions they can go in their transformations, and that's not the best answer for them. So I, I wanted to create something that was more aligned with client needs around independence, technology agnostic, uh, consulting, the ability to specialize and focus on digital transformation, help them through the entire journey, and um, at the same time, just build a build a great company. I mean, so I mean, the biggest why for me personally is I just want to build a really cool company that people love working for and really want to work for. Um, and to me, that is probably the biggest reason personally, but that's not enough without the other two things I mentioned. So yeah. that's that's the why for for me and for third stage. Yeah. Are you going to ask me? Yes. <laughs> no, I, I <laughs> no. Oh, am I supposed to? <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what is it for you? So in your role at, at third stage, for example, what, what is the why for you? Yeah. I think, um, the why for me is third stage matches my entrepreneurial spirit and my deep love of technology. And in the marketing space, I get excited and inspired to bring technology that makes people's lives easier, more enhanced, or just to celebrate the innovation of, of being a human being, seeing what we can create, seeing how we create networks to share with one another, even if we're physically far apart, we still have the ability to collaborate. So I think that's my why behind that. And, and Third Stage really enables me to do that, which I'm very grateful for. So. Yeah, and being able to have an impact on organizations and throughout the world. I mean, that's a pretty yeah. cool, I, I would think that's, uh, I don't want to speak for you, but that to me, that's a cool yeah. part of what oh. you do. Yeah, and you know, they teach me so much about other cultures, our team does, and it's so diverse that, you know, you had no idea that, you know, someone had done so-and-so or was an expert in so-and-so, and there's always someone to learn from, which I definitely appreciate and keep someone like me that's always kind of reaching for more really always kind of satisfied with being able to be a constant learner yeah yeah that's well, definitely a good space for that that's the beauty of just our industry in general too is the there's if you're not constantly learning then you're doing something wrong in this space <laughs> you, you you you're uh, you've got some big everyone's got blind spots but you've got a especially big blind spot is if you're not finding the opportunity to learn because there's so much to learn in this space absolutely Absolutely. Well, now that we've focused on that appreciation, like Jed told yes, us to self affirmation, um, I think yeah, is a word right. <laughs> Kumbaya, yep. if you will. <laughs> yep. I'm smart um, enough. I'm good enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. 
Um, so the, the next segment with Sarah, the reason we chose this was because it really gives some baseline for organizational change management um, and goes through kind of all of just the setting up tactics. So if you heard the emotional intelligence piece, the organizational design and culture piece, and you're like, yeah, I want to do that. These are This is more kind of a tactical of like, how do you actually do that, which I think couples nicely with um, just this, this great insight that Jed gave us. Yeah, yeah, so we're just kind of moving our way back up to the bigger picture of change management in general, not just culture, but everything else uh, outside of culture related to change. Um, so we, why don't we take a quick break and when we come back, we'll play this clip from uh, Sarah Dokovich who uh, hosts some of our sister podcast episodes on the Digital Stratosphere channel. And by the way, if you don't subscribe to that channel or if you haven't listened to that channel, it's a different podcast, uh, similar faces and voices on that show, but uh, totally different format. It's it's more of a short form, you know, 10 to 20 minute episodes released more frequently uh, versus this podcast, which tends to, tends to be longer form um, formats. Um, both very good in my opinion. I like I like them both, but I'm, I'm extremely biased as well, I'll admit that. So uh, anyway, Sarah interviewed me for that podcast talking about an overview of change management. We thought it'd be a good place to start or sort of give a, a high-level overview of change management. So we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll play that clip. When we come back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 52. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and uh, this is the episode where we're, we're going deep into change management, culture, uh, organizational dynamics, organizational design, all that stuff. So far, we've covered some hot topics around culture and change management. We had Jed Hafer on talking about organizational culture and how it applies to uh, organizational performance and transformation in general. But now we want to shift gears or not even shift gears, but just maybe broaden the scope a little bit and look at change management overall. What are some of the other components of change management that we haven't already talked about as it relates to culture and some of the other things we've talked about? And what are all those other different components? So um, to help unpack that, we thought we'd play you a clip from our sister podcast on the Digital Stratosphere podcast, which please subscribe to that if you don't already, uh, in addition to this podcast. Um, that one, we put out new episodes three times a week, shorter form, little bite-sized segments. Um, and in that, in this interview we're going to play you, is uh, Sarah, who was hosting that episode, interviewing me about change management to talk about what is it and what are some of the different components of change management. So why don't we play that clip and then we'll, we'll sort of unpack it a bit after that. So here's the clip between Sarah and I talking about organizational change. How would you summarize the concept of change management for our listeners? Well, to simplify it or super simplify it, I would say that change management is really any sort of activity or strategy that enables your people, your employees, your team 
that enables them to adapt to and be part of the change. And so in other words, it's what makes the transformation real. Uh, it's not real until your people are actually executing against this new operating model using your new systems and the new organizational design. It's anything that, that enables people to, to adapt to and become the change. That's great. No, that makes total, total sense. And I feel like when people can be part of it, they kind of feel a little more involved in the whole process too, rather than them kind of being like shuffled around or telling, being told what to do kind of thing, which I think is really important yeah. in any kind of industry or business. Now, why is change yeah. management? Yeah, no, definitely. So why do you think change management is so important to digital transformation? Well, it's, it's, important to any sort of transformation. I mean, any sort of business change, you know, change management is going to be important. But when you talk about technology change, especially when you're talking digital transformation or ERP or CRM, HCM, human capital, whatever, whatever types of technology you might be deploying in your business, chances are it's going to have a pretty significant impact on your business and, and impact for the better. I mean, it's going to help you be more efficient, more profitable, helps you be more effective in the way you do business. And, However, that's all theoretical or philosophical until we actually can achieve that. And the way we achieve it is by having people that can work in this new environment in a way that's actually saving you money and saving time and making you more effective and providing a better customer experience for your customers. All that stuff, all the potential benefits of technology don't become real until we effectively deal with the change management side of things. Got it. Definitely. And with all the change going on in the world, such as like technology and changes, remote teams due to the pandemic and economic turmoil and things like that, are people sort of used to change or in other words, isn't change just like a given in today's world? It's a, that's a great question. And a, and a lot of companies that we talk to will say that they'll make those sorts of comments that, Hey, we're used to change. We, we just had to move to an entirely remote, work environment because of COVID, or we just, we've been out acquiring companies for the last few years, integrating them into our business, or we're growing very quickly. So our people are used to change. And so on the surface, you think, okay, we're used to change. So it's not going to be hard, but the risk is that first of all, there's change fatigue. The change fatigue is a very real thing where if all those things that I just mentioned as examples are true to your organization, you're growing, um, you're entering new markets, you're acquiring companies, you're dealing with COVID like everyone else. That is a lot of change, but at some point people reach a breaking point and they can't handle any more change. And if you go to throw a digital transformation on top of all the changes that people are already experiencing, it can be overwhelming if we don't manage the change well. And more importantly, if we just back up, I mean, we have to make sure that the transformation itself is, even before we think about change management, we have to make sure our transformation strategy and plan makes sense and is realistic and fits the world we're in today. But once we've done that, we still have to manage the change and ensure that people understand it and that we're really helping them through the, the entire process. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It's like we live in a world of information as well. So I can totally relate to information fatigue as change fatigue. So <laughs> it's just a lot going on at once. And sometimes, yeah, you just need to kind of draw your line for a second. Um, so if change management is so important to digital transformation success, then why do so many organizations struggle with this concept? Well, I think it's because a lot of organizations don't know what it means. And I, mm -hmm. I know your first question is just, you know, how, what is change management? And 
that answer I gave you may have been a good introduction to what change management is, but it doesn't really tell you what you need to do, or it, it doesn't give you answers as far as how do I manage that change. And so people end up defaulting to the really simple, low-hanging fruit, things like uh, training. Uh, I'll, I'll just do end-user training on my new technology. I'll train people how to use it, and that'll be my change strategy. Well, if, if you wait until training, that's way too late. I mean, if, if people are going to at some point freak out because their lives are changing and they're going to end up freaking out in the end user training sessions right before you're about to go live. So you need to let people have those freak out moments a lot earlier uh, in the process as early as you possibly can because you need to work through those freak outs. And that's a very technical term, by the way. So I apologize if uh, <laughs> I'm getting, getting too technical, but uh, it may not be the, the most technical term, but it, every organization has those, those freak out moments. And so we need those people to be able to work through it. And we need to have a clear strategy and plan to migrate people through that, that whole transition. And these are pretty disruptive technologies typically that we're talking about. And so it's, it, mm. like I said before, has a lot of benefit potential, but it's also highly disruptive to your operations and your people in the meantime. Yeah, totally. So many people think of training and communications when they describe change management. So is that an actual, like an accurate description, would you say? No, there's there's a lot more to it. Maybe building on your your last question a bit, um, there's things that I mean. Certainly, first of all, training and communications are both very important. I don't want to downplay its the significance, but those are more kind of capstone type activities. In other words, those are things that happen after you've done a bunch of other more fundamental stuff. So things like uh, just defining what your future state organizational structure is going to be. You know, how are roles and responsibilities going to look in this new environment? How are the processes going to work? Who's going to do what? All that stuff has to be defined and not just from a pure uh, software technology design perspective, but more from just operationally, how are we going to use this technology? How's it going to fit in our business? And that's one thing that oftentimes gets overlooked because the, the software vendor or the system integrator that's building the software, all they really need to know is just how does the software need to be built? But what we need to know from a change perspective is we don't really care how the software is going to be built. We care about how it's going to affect people and how it's going to change their jobs and change the processes. So we need to define the difference between point A and point B, where we are today and where we're heading in the future and how it affects different people. So Sarah is going to be much affected, much differently affected than Eric's going to be affected. So we need to figure out a change strategy that allows Sarah to migrate at her pace and it's in a way that's specific to her and I need to have my own change plan or, or approach that's going to help me through my transition because my changes are different than what you're going through. So that sort of getting into and unpacking what the changes are is one of the biggest prerequisites. And then there's also the, you know, actually executing on multiple change strategies, not just training communications, but also having change discussions and uh, workshops with people to involve them in the changes and help them understand the changes all that sort of stuff is important uh, well before training communications happen. Okay, great. Thank you for clearing that up. Now, I wanted to shift gears and talk a little bit about change resistance because I know um, that you and the rest of the third stage team commonly work with clients that think that people are going to embrace change only to find out that later they are resisting it. So can you explain this dynamic to us? Yeah, so... I mean, that's a very common dynamic that you mentioned where, where companies will say, you know, our people are used to change, like I was saying before, or they're ready for the change. They, they're tired of their old systems. They know these processes are broken. They know these technologies are outdated. So they're ready for us to implement new technology. 
And I have no doubt that that's true for most organizations and most employees. And, and I think the, the first thing and the most important thing to recognize about resistance to change is that most resistance doesn't come from a bad place. It doesn't come from uh, a desire to sabotage the company or sabotage the project or uh, a desire just to resist change, to be difficult or whatever. I mean, usually people are on board with the change, but the problem is when you start messing with people's lives and you start taking away job responsibilities because now it's going to be automated in the technology or you start moving roles and responsibilities around or you take away that spreadsheet that I created 20 years ago to help manage the business and I take pride in being able to manage the business using the spreadsheet and only I can use the spreadsheet to manage the business. Now, all of a sudden, you're taking that away from me and you're saying anyone could do this with the new technology. I'm going to feel threatened by that and I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. I'm not trying to be malicious or ill-willed, but as an employee, I'm going to naturally resist that. And it's very understandable because we're, we're human. So we have to figure out how do we, how do we help people understand that there is going to be resistance. It's not a matter of if it's how much resistance is there going to be? How severe is it? Where is it going to come from? Certain parts of your company are going to be more or less resistant than others. And what am I, most importantly, what am I going to do about it? How am I going to mitigate those risks and how am I going to help people through the, through the change and help them overcome that resistance. Yeah, no, it's so true. And like you, you bring up a point where it's like, obviously the change is trying to be implemented to improve, you know, the process and the systems and everything that you have going on. But again, at the end of the day, when you're dealing with humans, humans are very ego driven as well. So that's another thing that you have to deal with, especially when you're saying, you know, you might be taking someone's job completely away or the person that could only do that one thing and now anybody can do it. And yeah, that is a threat to a lot of people. And at the end of the day, I think it's very important on how you treat the people that do work within the companies to to be able to help them embrace the change rather than resist it. So Yeah, it's also a it's also a cultural thing too. I mean you're you're kind of hitting on a another point, which is every company has their own unique culture and every company's trying to maybe bend their culture or tweak their culture a bit. And the way we manage change, manage people during a transformation is going to, it's that, that should reflect our culture and what we want to be. And a lot of times companies take pride, for example, in having, you know, a very employee centric model or, or being a great place to work, but then they go through these transformations and they totally skimp on the change management activities and, it, and, it, and it's in conflict with that culture that you've spent all this time creating and a culture that might be a competitive advantage for you now, all of a sudden you're undermining it because you're not managing change the way that people are used to you doing it or would expect you to do it in that, in that type of environment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it does sound like a pretty complex topic. You're dealing with a lot of different issues at once, I guess. And I can see why change management would be so important to a transformation. All right, this is good stuff. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll pick up and finish this conversation. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. 
Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 52. We're playing you a clip between Sarah Dokovic and myself talking about what is organizational change management and providing that overview of change management. Let's cut back to the conversation right now. So now before the break, we're talking about why change management is so important. And now what are some of the most important components of an effective change management strategy? Well, in no particular order, maybe semi-sequential order, I would say that the first thing is an organizational assessment and really starting to quantify and define what your potential sources of resistance are going to be. And again, like I mentioned before the break, it's not a matter of if there's going to be resistance, it's a matter of how much resistance and what's the root cause of it and how do we tackle the resistance. So with an organizational assessment, the goal is to understand and define what the potential sources of resistance are going to be before they ever become problems so that we can mitigate them from the start and not have to worry about fixing it later on. And, you know, change management is so often what derails a implementation or causes time delays and just things to go off off track. And so we really need to get ahead of it as much as we can and really define uh, what the organizational assessment is as a starting point, which then, by the way, leads to a change strategy that's more specific to you and your organization and your culture and what you're trying to accomplish. A couple of the other things that are maybe the low hanging fruit, the really big buckets of important change activities. Another one is organizational design. That's, a, that's an area that a lot of companies don't really think about is, is defining what the, what the organization is gonna look like. Are you gonna have a, you know, a shared service model where you're consolidating all your procurement functions into one department now and you're gonna centralize that and you have common processes for your procurement process? If so, what's that gonna look like? How are people gonna do their jobs? What are their roles and responsibilities gonna be? And ultimately, how are their jobs gonna be affected so that we can start enabling some of those changes and start to roll out some of those changes rather than just waiting until we go live with new new technology. So that's that's another one. Um, I'd say obviously, you know, training, communications that we talked about, those are important uh, factors and functions. And then another one that's, that's really important that a lot of times people don't equate to change management is this whole concept of benefits realization. So how do we actually achieve the benefits we expected to get? So when we define what we thought we wanted technology to do for us, how do we ensure that we are enabling people to actually help accomplish that? And so really focusing your change efforts on measurable improvements to the business is a way to take something that's often viewed as a sort of a touchy feely, nice to have activity and it, and it turns it into something more tangible and pragmatic and measurable. Okay, got it, awesome. And how should these change management work streams fit into the overall project, would you say? Well, there's a couple different ways. I mean, first of all, I'd say that as a general rule of thumb, change management should be incorporated into your overall project plan. It should be part of your overall transformation strategy. It shouldn't be a standalone strategy that you just do in parallel. It should be part of a bigger bigger plan. And so that's the, the one commonality. But beyond that, I mean, there's a number of ways you could structure it. A lot of times companies will have a separate change management team where all that team is doing is helping manage the change. Um, I personally like the approach better where you, you embed change management into everything that other people are doing. So for example, if you're a business process lead on a 
on a um, transformation, your, your focus and your number one priority might be defining what your future state processes are going to be. But another really important role that those people should be playing is how do I identify what the impacts to, to the people are going to be and how we can enable those changes and really bake the change management stuff into the day-to-day -day activities of the project. I like that approach better. It doesn't always work because a lot of times people don't have time along with their other responsibilities to do the change stuff. And a lot of times the change stuff will fall off the radar if, if, if they don't have the time. So that's where a dedicated change team can help. But the problem with the dedicated change team is that oftentimes the change management stuff gets disconnected and siloed from the process and the technology stuff that's happening and, it, and it's, it's not aligned oftentimes. So, you know, in a perfect mm -hmm. world, I'd say embed it as part of the overall project team responsibility, but if necessary, you can also have a separate change team as well. Yeah, that's really informative. I appreciate that. Because, yeah, like you said, it, in an ideal world, it would be nice to have it all kind of in synchronicity and, you know, connected, but can't always be like that. So I wanted to ask, what are some of the prerequisites that need to be in place before a team can be effective in their change efforts? Well, the, the first thing is that there has to be a clear definition of what the future state operating model is going to look like, what your future state business processes are going to be, because really that's the foundation for everything else and anything change related. It all ties back to how, you know, what the changes are, and what that gap analysis is between the way things are today and the way things are going to look in the future so that we can roll by roll and department by department look at how are different people affected differently by those changes. So having a clear definition of the business process model and the business processes is one prerequisite. And then the second one that it, we talked about before, uh, but needs to be done before you really get too far into your change efforts is just the organizational design. What are roles and responsibilities going to look like in this new world? And again, it's not just about how technology is going to be used. It's about who's going to be doing what and what responsibilities are they going to have in this new, new world? Awesome. Yeah, totally. And what should a digital transformation change management team look like? So what type of team and people should focus on the change management? Well, we talked about how it should be structured um, a couple questions ago, but as far as the types of people you want on the change team, ideally you want people that understand change management and understand um, that the need and importance and priority of change management, but also understand hands-on how the business works and they understand the operations of, of, your, of your business. And I'd say that's probably one of the biggest challenges with change management practitioners in general is that they might be really good at the change side of things, the soft side of change, but they're not always good at, and they're oftentimes not good at understanding just how supply chains work or how financial and accounting operations work. And you kind of have to understand that stuff to be able to really be effective at, at change management. So ideally, you want people that can understand the softer side of change, but they understand the more tangible, pragmatic side of your, your operations. And then, you know, there's, there's also certifications and training out there for change practitioners. If you're an operations person, for example, that doesn't have that soft skill set, I think it's a lot easier to go get that soft skill set than it is to try and teach someone with the soft skill set to teach them about business and operations and things like that. So um, you can get ProSize certification, for example, or... Um, I think Change Management Institute is another organization that does certifications and training for change management. We provide a lot of uh, YouTube videos and training resources on our website for, for change management. So there's a lot of resources out there that you can, you can get to, to pick up the skills you need. Yeah, that's really helpful. 
it's just to be able to know a bit from both sides so then that way you can really hone in on kind of getting very clear and helpful with the outcome. So what would you say to executives that think change management is a touchy-feely thing or something that's just a nice to have? What are your thoughts? Well, I'd say the number one thing or takeaway I'd leave with someone who's thinking that or, or asking the question is I've yet to meet an executive team or a program manager, program manager or CIO or CFO that's been involved in a transformation that has said that they regretted spending too much time and money on change management. Uh, I've yet to meet that person that even thinks that they've spent enough time on change management. Most of the time, even with our own clients, they, they wish they would have spent even more time than they did on focusing on, on change management. So I guess that would be the big takeaway is just, you know, look at history and look at why so many projects fail. And the reason so many projects fail isn't because of the technology. Typically, it's usually because we haven't managed the, the organizational change management side of things well. Yeah, you bring up a really good point there. And what are some of the ways that organizations can get started with their change management initiatives? Well, I'd say that the first thing is that that organizational assessment I was talking about before. If, if you can start off by assessing from a quantitative perspective and a qualitative perspective, what is the lay of the land? What, where are those organizational pitfalls and likely sources of resistance? And most importantly, how can we use that to inform a more effective change strategy? That's, that's an important first step because the change management world tends to believe in, oftentimes believe in kind of one size fits all answers or silver, silver bullets. And the reality is they don't exist. There is no one size fits all answer. And we need to be a lot more surgical and focused in how we manage change that's specific to you as an organization and how, how the um, business processes are going to be changing and how the, the organization is going to be affected. So that organizational assessment up front is important. And generally when we do an organizational assessment, it's two prongs. One is the kind of an anonymous online survey that's meant to capture qual quantitative data around the culture of the organization and, and starting to quantify some of the things that oftentimes could lead to failure or to change management risk. And then there's the more qualitative analysis too that we do via focus groups just to get a better understanding of uh, some of the, the softer side of change around the culture of the organization and communication styles and things that are very much related to how, how change needs to be managed within a transformation. Awesome, totally makes sense. I love that, thank you. All right, good stuff. Well, thank you, Sarah, for uh, that clip and for those great questions that you'd asked of me a while back. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll sort of dive into some of these topics we covered and unpack those concepts around change management in a little bit more detail. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. So for all you listeners of Transformation Ground Control, I wanted to remind you of a premier annual event that we host every year. It's called Digital Stratosphere. It's a virtual conference that we've actually shifted to virtual since the pandemic. And we're having our next Digital Stratosphere conference online virtually uh, February 8th through the 10th. So I encourage you to register for that. We're going to, myself and others from the third stage team will be hosting sessions, facilitating sessions about software selection, how to implement software, what some of the best practices are, change management, digital strategy, program management, all the stuff you need to know to make your digital transformation successful in 2022 and beyond. This event's for you. Registration's free. We encourage you and your teams to join. Um, if you're not able to join us live, which we hope you will, 
But if you can't join us live, we'll also have, uh, we'll make the recordings available to you. So be sure to register either way. Even if you can't join all the sessions live, you'll at least get access to the library of recordings. So I encourage you to check that out. There's a link below in this podcast, wherever you're listening or watching. Uh, there's a link below to register. And you can also just go to our website at Third Stage, and it's spelled T-H-I-R-D stage dash consulting.com at the top of the page you'll see an icon for registering for digital stratosphere so be sure to check it out digital stratosphere february 8th through 10th hope to see you there hello and welcome back to transformation ground control episode number 52 my name is eric kimberling here with kyler cheatham and uh, kyler we just had the clip that we played here between sarah and myself talking about change management We've talked a lot about change management in the show over 51, now 52 episodes. What uh, what takeaways did you have from that clip, especially now that we have touched on change management so many times in past episodes? Does that change anything for you, or do you have any takeaways from that uh, from that clip? Yeah, well, the reason that clip is one of my favorites is because it really does lay out the basics that I think a lot of times we forget. Um, I think something that, that you said specifically is when you go in and you're doing an executive strategy session or kicking off a project with a client, a lot of times that client will be like, oh no, you know, our culture is awesome. We're all innovators, you know, we're creators here. And um, I wanted to dig into a lot of times that's totally true, right? And that's great. But at the same time, that does not mean that you will not have any organizational change challenges. So how do you have that conversation with clients just from a baseline of saying, well, you are going to experience this, everyone does. And then also just adding on to that, how can leaders be more aware that that's just something that comes with the project? It's not a negative. It just, it is what it is when it comes to going through a change. Yeah. So, um, I guess to start, first of all, this is a very common dynamic and challenge, um, and it's it's something that it is hard to get executives to see um, you know, and understand without having, again, felt the pain. And so what you don't want to do is wait until the executives feel the pain, because by the time they feel and recognize that there is there are change management issues, it tends to be too late. And by that point, you've already derailed the project and you've created significant delays. So you don't want to wait until the executives feel it. So what you do is if, if you can, uh, on the flip side of the other extreme, is you could tell them how important change management is and how they need to do change management. That's usually not enough either because it, it doesn't, change management doesn't mean much unless you have a very prescriptive, specific way of addressing change. And more importantly, if we back up even more, it's not enough to just say we need to do change management because we need to understand why. Why do we need change management? What's going to be unique to this situation that's going to create change management issues. Certainly, we see a lot of common patterns with organizations we work with where there's common change management issues and challenges, but we need to talk the language and speak situationally to what exactly this client is, is experiencing. And not only just what this client is experiencing, but within the client, different work groups, different individuals and departments and business units are going to have different um, things motivating and driving them and different things that might affect the level of resistance to change. So the way to do that is to diagnose and to have uh, organizational assessments that help create a very specific, tangible way or, or understanding of the current environment and sort of exposing the landmines that are out in the field that we're about to walk out to. 
And if we don't do that, then it's just sort of a nebulous term like, hey, let's go do change management, and it, it doesn't resonate. But if we can say, here are where the landmines are, they're specific to you, and here's what we recommend you do to overcome those landmines or to navigate those landmines, uh, that speaking that language and being more specific in that way can be very helpful. So that the organizational assessment, though, is the prerequisite to get there, though. Absolutely. And, and if you are an executive or a future executive listening right now, what would be a piece of advice when it comes to just accepting that change management is a, a hard, tangible part of the project? Yeah, it's that's that's the education part. So we have to make sure that people recognize and um, expect that change management is going to be difficult. One of the most common dynamics we see with clients we work with, especially on the executive level, is you hear executives say, change management shouldn't be a big deal for us because everyone's tired of their old systems. They see the need for a new system. We've already talked to them. Everyone's on board. So we should be okay with change management. As long as we train people and keep them up to date, we'll be all right. We hear that all the time. I mean, it's probably one of the most common um, misconceptions we hear from clients. And a lot of times clients think, yeah, I understand you say change management's important and it's it's important for most other organizations, but we're different. Um, we actually are ready for the change. And that's another thing we hear all the time. So um, again, it's, it's, it's hard to win the argument as consultants uh, early on because there is this level of excitement and we haven't gotten below the tip of the iceberg yet in terms of really unpacking the resistance that is inevitably going to happen. So that's why that organizational assessment, again, if we, if we can convince a client to do an organizational assessment to assess the culture, assess the strengths of the weaknesses, then usually as you dissect it a little bit more, then it becomes more tangible, more pragmatic, and then it becomes easier to uh, see the path forward or what the path forward should be for your change management efforts. And, and relating it back to our conversation earlier, we do see a lot of executives standing up to say, you know, okay, we need a strong culture. We need, you know, a really strong employee benefit program. We want people to work here. Why is it that they are so, you know, interested in that piece, but a piece that directly correlates to that, which is change management and going through that in any sort of transformation or technology implementation project? They seem to say, mm, no, we're fine with that. And to me, those two really go together. Um, is that the way you kind of look at it? And, and why does it seem to be kind of tip the balance towards the culture side and leave organizational change kind of in the dust? Why is that? That's a great question. You know, I, 20, as you were talking or as you were asking that question, I, I was thinking about, I don't know why this popped in my head, but it, it does relate to what you're saying. Uh, 20 years ago, you know, early in my career, if I, if I were to talk about some of the common reasons why uh, leadership teams and organizations might overlook or choose to overlook change management, a lot of times it would be that old school mentality of, we don't need to worry about change management. They're just going to do it because we tell them to, <laughs> you know, we're going to tell yeah. people to change and they're just going to yeah. do it. I mean, they don't have a choice. So why are we worried about change management? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they just they're going to suck it up and they've been told what to do for 30 years and they're going to do it again when we tell them this time. So you heard that a lot more like 20 years ago, early in my career. You, you don't hear that nearly as much now. I think people, you know, have advanced in their leadership styles and there's a you know sort of a universal recognition that the command and control uh, management style and cultural mindset is only helpful in very select uh, cases of crisis and, you know, certain moments in time where you need to take a command and control approach, but in general, it's generally not a, a preferred plan A. 
Um, but the reason I bring this up, though, is because now I think I think the intentions are actually good. I think people actually genuinely think that change management is not going to be a problem. I don't think it's that they don't value change management. I think they value the people, they value the culture, but I think they genuinely think and believe people on the surface when they say, yeah, we're on board with putting in new systems or new processes or changing the organization to be more nimble because we're so bloated or we're so inefficient and we get it. So on the surface, people are telling us that change management is not important. I mean, that is what most leaders are hearing. So I don't doubt that. And I don't think it's coming from a negative place as it might have been coming from 20 years ago. Um, but it's, it's almost like a false, it creates this false sense of optimism because the, the people themselves are saying, yes, we're ready. Yes, we're on board and we're going to support this change. They're saying it because they don't know any better either. So we're creating this sort of closed feedback loop that's very biased and unrealistic. And that's, to me, that's the, the real problem. So we've got to kind of create, undo that or, or open the closed feedback loop to the outside to see that, you know, there there's more to it than what, what we see on the surface. Yeah, that's, that's really very interesting, um, fascinating, even, you know, how that overall psychology of a transformation. Um, and then one thing I, I feel like it's, it's important to revisit from that clip that was just a little over a year ago when the, the pandemic was really kind of still trying to figure out like, what is this? Not that we aren't still trying to do that, but we're a bit more informed now. Uh, but you talked about change fatigue and that really kind of resonated with me and you know, the, the challenge of change fatigue and how to make sure that doesn't happen. Because I can imagine right now, if I'm an employee, I went from an in-person work environment, now I'm remote and I need to learn how to use all of these systems remote and manage my household at the same time and go through that huge change. And then I'm back in the office and then I'm back out of the office or I'm you know, quarantining or something or my kids quarantining. And there's just this level of constant change within our overall environment. So now that we're two years into the constant changing, how do you create, um, or I guess, make sure that you're triaging any change fatigue that might be happening within your organization because you do want to continue to innovate and implement and grow but you're they're tired you know yeah. <laughs> they're tired of change so yeah how do, you, how do you evaluate that it's such a relevant question today you know because people are tired they're tired of uh even though a lot of people say that uh, you know, work from home for office type workers or the people that have the luxury of being able to work from home. Uh, people are saying, a lot of people are saying that's here to stay and that's sort of a permanent thing. But there's a lot of people that are really tired of it too. Tired of being on Zoom, tired of not being able to separate work from home and not having that clear delineation. So, uh, and the fact that along with that work from home and, and all the other disruptions caused by the pandemic comes the fact that now you've also got these digital transformations that in many cases are being accelerated or forced on organizations because of changes in the world. Um, there's, there's a lot of change. People are tired. So you, I think the first thing is to make sure you have a realistic strategy overall and a strategy that fits you. If people are tired, if they're burned out, maybe you don't need to move at as fast of a pace as you'd like. It may not be ideal. It may not be what you want in a perfect world, but this is reality. People are tired. Then let's you know have a strategy and a roadmap that takes that into account. The other option, if time is not on your side and you just don't have the luxury of slowing down, then maybe you think about, all right, well, how are we going to staff up the team then? How are we going to add more resources and make sure that we've got the, the bandwidth and the support so that we're not just adding workload to an already spread thin workforce? So it's stuff like that, like thinking about the overall, uh, the overall transformation strategy and roadmap, the resourcing strategy, 
um, making sure we've got the right plan that's aligned with who we are and what what we're trying to accomplish and be realistic too would be the other piece of that well good well i think that again that's such a, a really relevant conversation for right now and and i know um, we're going to go into some greater detail on change management at our 2022 digital stratosphere event which is happening on february 8th through the 10th um, and eric do you kind of want to talk about digital stratosphere just real quick and kind of give our audience an overview of why you started it and what it is? Yeah. So uh, when uh, we first started Third Stage, we started doing in-person stratosphere events. This is back in 2018. And quite frankly, at the time, it was just a way for us to reintroduce our team who had been in the space for a long time, but Third Stage was relatively new at the, or was brand new at the time in 2018. So we wanted to introduce the team or reintroduce the team and the brand to the market. And so that was, you know, those in-person events were one of our key uh, marketing strategies and tactics. Um, when the pandemic hit, though, you know, we had to shift gears like a lot of organizations and move to a, to a virtual model. And uh, we've sort of stuck with that virtual model exclusively so far. I mean, at some point, I hope uh, later this year, we, we go back to the in-person uh, events. Uh, but we're doing so we're doing this again virtually as a way to kind of building on that momentum. And we just like to, you know, our the best way that we can connect with uh, potential clients, potential uh, team members that might become team members as we continue to grow um, and just connect with other peers in the industry is to put on these events. It's just a great way for us to connect with them and, and share our philosophies and lessons and thoughts and uh, help a lot of organizations along the way, some of which will become clients at some point, some of which will become uh, team members, some of which will continue to be peers and never become either. So it, 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 it's, it's kind of a win-win all the way around. And so that's really the whole reason why we why we started it. Absolutely. And, and the virtual environment does have the ability to reach our global audience. So what we do is we do host this virtual conference for three days, packed full of keynotes, of panelists, um, all kinds of different stakeholders and thought leaders from the industry, and then also from the third stage team. And we offer recordings after the fact. So you, if you are one of our um, community members that are in a different time zone and you can't join the live event, you can still watch the event back and see all of the questions and dialogue being asked by the audience because it's very interactive. And all three days are completely free this year. So the link to register or to view the full agenda is in the description here. You can also visit our website which is stratosphere2022.com to register as well. So definitely something that's really exciting. All right. Well, yeah, that's great. So if you go to stratosphere2022.com, you can see the agenda out there. You can register. It's free, free registration. Uh, if you miss some or all of the sessions, you'll get recordings after the fact. So be sure to check it out. A good lineup of speakers, too. It's uh, not only different team members from third stage, but we have other peers, uh, industry peers that will uh, be presenting as well on different topics. So uh, be good to... Uh, Good to have you all there. So uh, thanks again for another great episode, Kyler. And thanks to the audience here for listening in today. Be sure to check us out. New episodes every Wednesday. And also be sure to check us out on social media, whether it's Instagram, uh, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, whatever social media platforms you're on. Check us out. We're constantly putting out daily updates and thought leadership out there that's meant to help you through your transformation journeys. So um, thank you again for being here. Hope you have a great week. And we'll look forward to seeing you next Wednesday on Transformation Ground Control. Have a great week in the meantime.